0: is I'm just going to put my phone on charge so that it does pop out at any time. Just before we start.
1: I've got a I've got a top tip for you for your next next one you do Go on. start recording the moment the call begins and never do an introduction just start talking and then okay. just allow it to become the thing you're going to use. Um, okay. I, I, say what, I got that actually from Joe Rogan. That's how he does it.
0: So he just starts talking he doesn't yeah do for the moment intro. the
1: person is in the room the the micro the, the, everything's rolling and then yeah. at some point when they begin they then they, they then just ed, do the edit there um yeah. it's a much better way because everyone's then completely natural and you don't have yeah. this hi andy hi alan how are yeah, you know, yeah, i'm yeah, yeah. good <laughs> thing. oh for fuck's sake the amount every fucking nlp that does an interview it always begins with that sort of stilted trying oh, to get somewhere
0: it. well do you know what because uh, after we started to speak, I sort of started to think, right, uh, internal, there was a drum roll. like, I need to start building up for the big intro. So, so let's just, let's just kick off. And I so, recommend
1: as well with, yeah. uh, I say this to, to coaches and therapists, if you're doing client sessions too, mm-hmm. they have this notion, like, here we are having a conversation, okay, and now we're going to begin the session. And they just yeah. change the entire frame and paradigm. Why do people yeah. do that? Why do yeah. why do coaches and therapists have this notion? They have to paradigm absolutely every interaction as a therapeutic interaction or a not therapeutic in, interaction. And I know yeah. why, because now yeah. I'm charging you for my wisdom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what it comes right. down to. Yeah. And it's, it's ridiculous. So you take the frames away from human interactions. And that way you have yeah. got two human beings having a conversation. Difficult um, concept for a lot of them. I know.
0: Well, well, but there's the thing, uh, that, uh, you know, they
1: won't have a chance to, to do the creepy hypnotist voice. Yeah, the creepy um, hypnotist voice is quite important. But again, that yeah. can be that can be incrementally introduced throughout the session, it doesn't have to be done as okay, and now I'm going to begin the hypnosis. So yeah. if you'd like to put <laughs> yeah. your feet flat on the floor and close it, that has a place, it does have a place. Because for some people, that's the expectation they require. Mm. But mm-hmm. if we look at people like Erickson, if you look at people like Bandler, actually, mm-hmm. not like when they're teaching, because obviously you have to teach people the steps to mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. But yeah. when when they're actually doing the work, they don't do any of that stuff. They just no, get well, on with it in in the middle of the conversation they're having, because the conversation is the conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah. They well, I I guess yeah, I guess they don't feel the need to create a a separate frame for it. I I, I it's interesting. Like some clients you know, over the years, I, I sort of found that I would be doing what I thought was fairly decent work and quite a naturalistic trance if I was doing anything with trance. And then I'd go, okay, right, let's stop. And let's do some hypnosis now or something like that. And, uh, and, and so the person's like, you know, jar It's really jarring and brought out, uh, you know, brought out of whatever, sort of, you know, like a state they're in, I'm like, okay, right now, we're going to go through the formal steps. And really, I didn't need to do any of that shit. But um. I I suppose you live and learn, you know, it it takes a a little bit of experience before you go beyond the very kind of prescriptive methods that you're that certainly in hypnosis, you'll talk by, Um, you know, I think that I think maybe it's because of the stigma of stigma of hypnosis is like, well, we have to give you a very, uh, you know, like a bullet by bullet point by point, you know, structure so that, you know, you don't, the person doesn't get trapped in hypnosis or any of that absolute bullshit i'd quite like to see somebody trapped in hypnosis i think it'd be quite interesting not for not for them obviously yeah they're the, the getting
1: getting trapped in hypnosis is that kind of notion of mind notion of the world that a child would have or yeah. somebody who's very very naive to their own thought processes and very naive to how other people think so theory yeah. of mind is not highly developed but it is yeah. interesting that some uh, some coaches and therapists also do retain this notion that they they have to be there to be able to undo the suggestion and you yeah. see this on, on forums so well, if you look on the reddit hypnosis forum i 've been hypnotized twenty years ago in a therapy session, and i I need the suggestions to be undone and yeah. I think what what notion does that individual actually have of mind, and and the fact that then lots of people come in with all these techniques and processes by which to do this, it it is fascinating. I say people's people's models of how how the brain works, how the mind works. It's like, yeah. maybe maybe well, I'm the, the anomaly. I mean, it could be.
0: Well, well, it's that it's that. Um, I remember seeing a little sort of really uh, sketchy, and I mean actually mean sketchy sort of little cartoon, and it was one guy standing on his head and um no everyone was standing on his head and and one person was standing up normally and all the people that are standing on their head were sort of pointing at the one standing up normally going you know you're you know you're doing it wrong or something like that you know so so i kind of get i get that and uh yeah it's 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 i just think that maybe it's it's because that there's this yeah i don't know whether it's the stigma or the fact that You know you have to sort of impute some uh well this is what i'm this is what i'm charging you for this is the the big kind of like theatrical you know like mm, where i turn into you know rasputin or whatever um yeah i don't know maybe it's that and so today i wanted to uh talk to you uh and talk with you about quite a few things so i've known you i must have known you about 12 years i reckon and. That was uh, so. My first interactions of you were were on NLP connections. Remember the good old days?
1: All uh, um, the good old days. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, the wild west. Um, and and obviously I sort of picked up. This guy knows what he's talking about, and oh, this is interesting because some people really don't seem to like what he says. But I found that what you were saying, you know, really kind of spoke to me and kind of made sense. And I suppose because I hadn't. I was sort of following NLP before I actually trained in NLP. Um, And I think because I was had almost like a not a layman's, but an outsider's view of it, I wasn't indoctrinated. So where you were speaking, what seemed to me common sense, and logic, maybe, um, it was, I was like questioning why, you know, the, the people who were of the cloth were sort of like, No, but that's no, that's that's not the case, and you know I can probably remember this, some of the arguments. Are so bloody petty and trivial, but um, but I remember you really even from even from and um, well the earliest times in in our relationship, if I can call it that, um, that you were not afraid. And I think that's the one thing that 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 really has ha- always always struck me about you that you you're literally don't give a shit about calling bullshit on anything and you know as we get into more of your sort of your personal history uh, around employment and stuff like that i think um it's g- going to be great for other people to be able to see how you know y- you're more than happy to sort of point the finger at almost like a whole um therapeutic paradigm you know uh, uh you know certainly in psychiatry and some of the, some of those kind of things and I, and what i'm genuinely interested in like well, how, like, how did you grow the bollocks like space hoppers enough that you could go, "Hmm, this is illogical." I think that's bullshit. You know, so that's one of the things that I'm certainly looking forward to, to hearing. But um, yeah. So, so that so I first saw you in NLP connections, and then then you started running uh, the uh, IEMT experimental workshops. And I thought, Oh, I'll have a bit of this. And I think I was saving up for, my, yes, I was saving up for my NLP practitioner, which uh, I think cost me about one and a half grand, or j- maybe just under a grand, which I thought was a fucking lot of money back back then. And it probably was. Um, but uh, so I think you were doing, you had a thing where for 49 pounds, you come and do this experimental workshop, whatever. And I remember going with a certain individual, a woman from that I'd met through uh and we connections, a really nice lady. And we went and I was blown away by the material that you were uh, you were sort of uh, presenting there, uh, which obviously, then later went on through a couple of iterations to become IEMT. And, um, and I was just as again, again, before this is it was the day before I started my NLP training. Uh, and so I was kind of, you know I'd read about the techniques and all the rest of it but, but to actually sort of see the effect the impact of something that seemed so almost trivial and I still you know stick to that about the the actual mechanics of int is they're almost trivial and so throwaway and yet my god like massive shifts that they created in people but i must i must say it was quite uh entertaining for me that you made my friend cry i don't know if you remember that
1: i do because well, at the end yeah. of it was one of those awkward moments i i, I learned a lesson in that particular experimental <laughs> workshop the lesson was never do a demo in the last half an hour before the end of the day because Yuck. if it all goes to shit and all goes wrong what do you do and of course we'll finish at five o'clock and 5 15 with some still there at the front, trying to deal with the emotional catastrophe that has emerged. 530 comes, and people are one by one getting up and going, thanks, Andy. Yeah, we'll see you next time. And it ended up with I think it was just the three of us in the room and everyone else left and what well, was an hour, hour and a half over time to try and deal? Yeah, less than life. Um, yeah, it was pre- it was right at the end of the workshop.
0: Yeah, it was pretty awkward. But um, but but yeah, I mean, I, but that that went and then and then the following day, I started my NLP training, and I really enjoyed that. Um, and but, but what struck me, and I don't want to talk about this too much, but it's kind of on my mind. So I'm going to put it out there. What I was fascinated by the, the fact that some people because I came to NLP and hypnosis and IMT to learn the skills, I thought, God, if I learn those skills, I'll be able to have an impact and you know do the some, do some no, yeah i guess yeah yeah yeah. i guess yeah and do some good and you know and, and i and and quite transparently i thought that'd be great for my ego and great for other people so there's a transaction it's not like oh no no i'm doing it all for the children or anything like that it's like i'll feel great about myself if i can help other people and i still do and i still i still you know uh, i do do thrive off that the idea you know if i can help someone that's fantastic but what i noticed was that a load of people that go in to learn a therapeutic, to learn the intervention are actually going there for sort of, well, some are going for entertainment and some are going for, uh, or edutainment maybe, maybe uh, and some of them are actually going there to, to, to sort of seek therapy. And just the idea of, okay, so let's look at this. You're going for therapy in a setting where people don't know the therapy and you're gonna trust your psyche and your, you know, your fragile psyche and uh, to in the hands of people who probably don't know quite at that point, what they're doing. It's just weird, isn't it?
1: But it's worse than that because then those emotionally needy, disturbed, mentally unstable (coughs) individuals, because they've turned up every day, they end up with a practitioner's certificate. Now they may have felt good during the week they may not have had the therapeutic change that's going to change the way they live their lives, but they've now got a practitioner certificate that will change the way they live their lives because now they're going to start going out there with a change of identity that says, I'm, I'm not a person. I'm not a person who's a patient. I'm not mentally ill. I don't have emotional problems. I'm doing personal development and I've done my personal development and I've got a practitioner certificate, which now means I'm elevated in my status. But most of them will still have the emotional psychological problems that they had before,
2: mm.
1: and now they're out there they'll set up websites they'll set up they'll post voluminously on social media these days or back then on the various forums that existed and before you know it, they start to garner some credibility um, that they are some <laughs> kind of practitioner,
2: mm.
1: and they're not they're a mess, mm. but of course, no one portrays themselves in their public face, especially on the internet, where we can highly filter and Photoshop every aspect of our lives to be the perfection. The per- and then the money starts coming in. And some of them actually do see clients. And I, and you and I share a number of people we know, who I know, are actually Munchausens. They are faking their entire life. And their entire, their whole life has been one of fakery. And a very, very good place to hide is a place where there's no objectivity. Because Mm -hmm. the therapies, the soft sciences Mm -hmm. have no objective reality because everything Mm -hmm. is subjective. It's not like I can pretend to be a chemist. I can pretend to be a physicist or an economist because there are objective measurements by which we can prove whether that person's real or not. Mm -hmm. In therapy and personal development, you get them all from the narcissists through to the mentally ill, through to the unstable. Mm -hmm. And some of those people actually break through to presenting themselves now to be the face of the field it's really disturbing because it's the thing no one likes to talk about i do and it's why they don't like me
0: yeah i, I remember i did some work with uh victim support uh and yeah it's voluntary work whatever <clears throat> and um just thought i'd get them in there you know subliminal messages i'm a good guy but uh so i was doing some work with victim support and on the training course oh my god so we did the i don't know it's like it's a few a couple of days i think up in the center of london it's like plush officers and uh, and there was a woman on on the training course, and she uh, she she was training to be a counselor. And counseling certainly has its place. I know I've got f- dear friends of mine that that when we've lost um, when we've lost friends through suicide and stuff like that, they've actually gone for counseling. And other people that I know that have gone to counseling and they've got some good stuff out of it. Uh, however, <clears throat> this this woman on this training course, she. she 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 seemed to be the um worryingly sort of maladjusted and uh and it was like you know those people that they're they're actually like got goldfish eyes and they're looking they've got like a thousand yards stare uh, yeah. and she was kind of like she, she was like oh you know we can do some work together if you want and I was just like yeah. but um but then that this reached a crescendo when in the training for victim support um they show a uh, a counselling session um, between a guy who was out one Christmas Eve or on his birthday, and he was jumped by a bunch of people. And these lads, they gave him a good kicking, and they were stamping on his face and all sorts of that happy mess. And uh, I, I, and I was just like ha- horrified that that the uh, that the uh, I don't know if a psychotherapist or the counsellor. He was basically revivifying the 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 uh traumatic event getting the person to relive the event and the person in the hope that salt and light and air a little bit of air get a bit of air on it would kind of like fix the problem but from what i saw um it was just basically almost like you know re-traumatizing consolidating that trauma and i'm not saying it's like that for for the times but i was absolutely horrified at at that the use of the model in, in that in that way
1: well, one of, one of the difficulties is that so many coaches and therapists across all, all the alphabet therapies and also within to orth, orthodox mental health as well. I mean, they're not exempt from my, my contempt for what <laughs> I see people doing. What, what they're doing largely is repeating the phrases and the, the ways of being that give them the identity of that particular role. So right. a mental health nurse will act and talk in a particular way. They will use certain buzz phrases and cliches when they are doing that. Mm. A counselor will use certain buzz phrases and cliches when they're mm. doing that and certain tones of voice. Mm. We've seen the, the people trying to do an impression of Milton Erickson, which is actually they've never seen. They're doing an impression of Richard Bandler doing an impression of Milton Erickson as they try and be mm. an Ericksonian hypnotherapist, having yeah. never studied Ericksonian hypnotherapy, mm. but they've done NLP, so they, they know everything. Mm. Mm-hmm. they're all repeating the stuff that they have learned to do because it gives them a group identity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, saw, I saw this with nurses too when I was a nurse. The worst thing you can do is talk like I do because this is not how nurses talk. Mm-hmm. I'm not supposed to be in a clinical setting as a junior level employee in a, in a hierarchy and talk like the way I do. It's why no one ever liked me. It's why I'm so unpopular in places because I didn't fulfill the identity role that you're supposed to have when you wear this cliched, uniform of whatever the, the role we're doing. What they're not paying attention to is what the hell is going on in the mind of the client they're talking to. Mm-hmm. Doing the job is more important than the results the job gets. Mm-hmm. And I, Again, I saw this in hospitals. Why do the nurses do that? Because that's what we do here. And if I don't do those things myself, then I'm going to be mm-hmm. criticized and held to account by my <laughs> colleagues, and somehow be an aberration or be lazy. So people mm-hmm. naturally fall into line and do what everyone else does. It's the same with counselors, it's the same with hypnotherapists and practitioners of every alphabet therapy. And it's, it's really frustrating for me to see. Um, and when I call it out, of course, um, the people I call out have fans. And just going back to the, the, the one particular Munchausen's patient that I know has given herself some degree of status within the alphabet therapy community. If I name her... If I were to name her, that would end my career in every possible way. Because this person has supporters, she has fans, she has people mm. who think she's really nice. They 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 think they, they've never met her. I know they've never met her, mm. but because they're connected on social media, there's a sense mm. of familiarity. Mm. Now, when I come along and say something truthful about those individuals, not only do I immediately get a legal threat come back at me. Um, and the person says, Oh, I'm suing Andrew Austin, because he's such a you know, with this defamation, counteraccusations come back. And then all the minions who are the supporters who believe that person and think I'm the bully because I'm the one speaking out of turn. It's amazing the backlash that I then that they then get. Mm. I've just thought I'd so, share this one because you mentioned <laughs> NLP connections earlier. <laughs> yeah, and why? Why did I get the reactions from NLP connections people that I used to get? Well, mm. there were a number of reasons. One was I spoiled the party. Um, and I never <laughs> really, I called people out on some of the nonsense and would provide counter views and and supportive arguments. I never really mm. derided an individual, I would, I would, I would pick on particular points of technical points that people didn't like. Mm. But here's the thing I I used to post regularly with sock puppets face accounts, uh, Mm. fake accounts, sorry, on on NLP connections. And if you ask anyone from those days, they'll tell you I used to do that. I never did that. But they will tell you because the, the two people I used to pretend to be are john Baker and Chris O'Donnell. And they used people used to think that john and Chris were me as sock puppets. Mm. Because John has the same—he lives, used to live just up the road here. He I met him; he's a great guy. Interests <laughs> as me, mm. and the same knowledge of neurology as I do, because we we are both from the same cloth in terms of that material. So we used to have very similar things we'd post about. Chris has the same clinical background that I do, and so he would post on the mental health stuff. He's also done all the NLP stuff and all the rest. People used to say I was those two people. Mm. And it does not matter if you show them the evidence. Well, he, he posted with sock puppets, everyone knows that. Okay, show me the, show me the evidence because maybe I was drugged and don't remember.
3: Yeah, And so I mean, now,
1: that becomes, <coughs> but that becomes a legacy. See, that becomes a legacy. So now I'm like the Scarlet Pimpernel because when other people are critical, oh, that's Andrew T. Austin doing that. He's under his one of his fake accounts again, really? So, I will make um, a confession, though. Go on. I will make a confession. um I, um, I did create a fake account. It never, ever, po- I never posted from this account. Mm. I mm. took a fairly arbitrary, reasonably good-looking young woman's photo mm. from a dating mm. site um, mm. from a foreign country, and I created a profile, and I just stuck it on there. And I never posted from that account once, never. I
0: didn't
1: send you pictures from that account, did I? Well, <laughs> so I, um, I just left it sitting there. This was on NLP connections. And I left it sitting there because I thought, let's just see, I'm just curious. Um, if I put out a little bit of bait, what comes back, I got one or two little messages, you know, oh, like your profile, I'm really, you know, it looks like we have common interests, blah, blah, blah. It was just all, all men, all guys. And I get it. Single guys are chancing wrong, but it's polite little messages. I took nothing there. But, but I did manage to get a message from a certain person who shall go unnamed. I can't give any reference to them at all. A certain mm-hmm. person in the let's just say big league um, who was on their way over to the country to come and attend um, on a particular event. And despite this person being married and having just had a child and which they supposed to about voluminously was really keen to meet up. And I thought, Hmm, interesting. If you it was like, like to meet up, nudge, I'd like to show you around. And it was like, okay, that's, that's interesting. They're not married anymore.
0: All <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. So uh, nice. yeah. But that, now, was now, only, now,
1: that was the only stock puppet account that I ever had. And that was the only yeah. so, and I never replied to that person. And I never mm-hmm. did anything with that, that particular account.
0: So you so, say so getting back to what you were saying about calling people out, like, how did you learn to to do that? Because like, were you born with a pair of brass bollocks on you? Like, no. that's a very. But is it like? I can only imagine that you. It's like almost like a, like a. It's obviously it's the sort of non-conformist kind of thing, but also it's almost like you're you're not buying into the group thing. Uh, and so, how did you learn? Is that something that you were born with or it happened, that you no, cultivated?
1: It in, a, in a single moment. Um, and I, I think I put this story in, the, in my book, The Rainbow Machine, available in all good bookshops. Yay. And it was from, see, up until, up until really 18, 19 years old, I was never really contentious. I was troubled. I had a lot of, a lot of emotional difficulties, a lot of emotional turmoil. But I was troubled. But I was, I was always very timid and very scared of authority figures. I was very much in that kind of subservient, subjugated kind of mindset. When I was a student nurse, I think I was a first year and I was on a unit where basically this guy was dying. He was going to die pretty much within the hours, you know, the same day. Beautiful summer's day. And he wanted to be wheeled outside into the grounds of the hospital. There was no gardens or anything. Um, basically, there was a tree outside the outside the window. And he wanted to be wheeled out there to go and die outside under the tree in nature. and so I didn't even hesitate I mean I was I didn't know what I'm not allowed to do I'm just I've got the naivety of youth so I went all right we started wheeling him out and management um, of the unit got really angry with me and I was told to put him back and he but he wanted to go out and do that and I was told to put him back and they put him back and I was then disciplined for that action and and I was held out to be some kind of freak, some kind of joke, some kind of moron. Because what kind of moron does that sort of thing? Mm. And and something in my head snapped. <laughs> It'll be fair to say, and a monster was born in that moment. Now, for mm. it took me years to learn how to curtail the emotional outrage that would come when i would see those things and it over the next few years it took quite a quite a big cost on me because those sort of things are standard in hospitals every clinic every clinical environment you go in you're going to find things that just defy all humanity and, and there are so many things I could I could go off on a tirade about all of the, the sort of the medical injustices that are actually framed and sold to the public as being really sensible and healthy. And this is a goodness. And it's not. it's a It's a terrible thing that's being perpetrated because I started to see those things every single day. I couldn't. And the emotional energy that I had because of all the turmoil, a monster was born. And then over the years, once I then finished working clinically and I started to sort myself out, um, I started to find much better ways of directionalizing and channeling that, that energy into something more productive. I think I was probably quite destructive, not constructive, when I was working in, in clinical, clinical environments. The only regret I have is I didn't do more. Um, I should have done, made a lot more noise, been a lot, lot more of a nuisance. But of course, when your income is dependent on the very, you know, basically don't bite the hand that feeds. There's only so far one can push things before they're unemployable. Um, And that's pretty much where I put myself. And so I had no choice then but to go self employed over time.
0: So so what what would that have looked like you? What would the process of you learning to control that, you know, bloody indignation? Like, you know almost like almost like taming the wild stallion yeah. kind of what what, would, how, what can, you, can you just i mean it's hard for you to say because obviously you're talking about yourself but um like how do you think that you manage well, like what were the sort of like the mechanisms that you use well, and-
1: part of it it will start the the self-analysis and working on my own emotional intensities you see negativistic emotions are very energizing Mm. And, and most emotions can be um, reactive emotions. So we react to things and they have a a great intensity. They can be fairly neutral emotions. They're not reactive, but they're not proactive. And then some emotions are highly proactive. So they promote you to do certain things. Mm. And it was largely for me coming out of all of the reactive states because i learned that when i got into a reactive state and got angry i would also get upset and then when i get upset and i get angry then i I start to become less articulate and when i'm less articulate i start shouting quite a lot and swearing quite a bit which is doesn't work very well in team meetings and it certainly doesn't work well when you're called into the manager's office for a quiet word and the manager is then met with this massive tirade of abuse um, from 22 year old andy it's not a, it just doesn't go down very well with the management hi- hierarchy so over time with enough feedback i started to realize that if i'm going to carry on i need to do something better and i've got to learn okay i can see what's wrong that's all well and good Find, identifying what what's wrong is easy protest is really easy. And I always think this Mm -hmm. about the protests I see when they start throwing things at the police. So, okay, so how's that a protest then when you get into fights with police officers? When people talk about overthrowing the government and fighting the government with guns, what that actually equates to is shooting police officers. Because that's what it looks like. That's actually what ends up happening. That doesn't seem like anything that's constructive or in any way useful to anybody. It's just wholesale negative. I started to recognize those patterns in that I was fighting the wrong people because, okay, I could attack this particular individual. There's millions more out there. And once I've attacked them and said my bit, they're not going to go, oh, you know, what, Andy, you're absolutely right. You know, I've listened to your emotional tirade and I see your point of view now and you've changed my entire reality. And I'm going to reorganize how this department runs and I'm going to make sure everyone coming through. That never happened. That doesn't happen. Um, so I realised, okay, I've got to attack the ideologies that govern these things, as opposed to particular individuals, and and that that was a slow process to learn. But also, I had to then get training for myself, and I had to get greater greater input from people. I had to learn greater wisdoms from outside of the areas in which I was working to broaden my own mindset and 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 have greater resources so it was a slow process but I think the other one is really simple I just got older and growing up certainly does calm one down and most of us can relate to that the emotional intensities of teenage years and early 20s compared to what now are late 40s and 50s things do calm down a bit just by getting older so that helps too. Mm but i think experience as well um, after like i think i was dismissed from employment 11 times um <laughs> oh, plus or minus a few um so yeah after a while it starts i started thinking mm, it's not working this is not working and of course my own well-being my own welfare and, and mental <laughs> and emotional health also wasn't working so good so yeah i need to sort me out first
0: so so when you were uh, when you were say uh going through that process and you um you know were were kind of try you know you're sort of wrestling with the wrestling with the monster so to speak and maybe having a couple of outbursts and and, and getting dismissed from a post uh because you know whatever because you thought certain thing was wrong and blah blah blah. Um what impact did that have on you? Like because I, because I'm listening to you and I'm like, thinking, God, I, mean, I think I would have been in bits. If I'd have been like sacked 11 times, I just would have been in absolute bits. Like, how did you sort of turn that around?
1: Well, there's, there's a, a narcissistic trait um, about, and, and I, I got this actually recently from, from Sam Vaknin, who runs a fantastic um, YouTube channel. And anyone who's not come across Sam Vaknin's work, just watch every single video he's produced. Mm. It'll take years to do. But something I learned recently is that, one of the narcissistic traits, and I, and I recognized looking back on myself then, I was very high in narcissistic traits. Mm. I was very low in psychop- psychopathy. I was way too anxious to ever be a psychopath and, and way too guilt-laden as well. But I, I did. I I clearly would have scored high, very highly on narcissistic traits. But one of them is they accept their punishment. They accept mm. that when they are doing the stuff that they do, the victim position is already in, built into that. And, and that actually, when I, when I saw... Vaclin's lecture on that particular thing, I thought, my God, he's talking about me Um, because that was how I was. It was when I'm going into a unit and I can see this stuff going on, I know what's going to happen way before it even starts. I didn't have to do the the, the, the sequences that I then engaged in, but I always knew that was going to happen next. But there, there was other elements, too. And there are people to whom I'll never know the names. I don't remember most of them, but there were plenty of people who agreed and supported me. And I had within management and hierarch- clinical hierarchies, I had supporters who bailed me out on a number of occasions. Mm-hmm. And that was always very reassuring. They weren't able to ever, ever do anything publicly. So, for example, when I when I first qualified, the health authority in which I was first working, within three months of working there, I was actually not just dismissed from my employment, but I was dismissed from the health authority. I was given a ban from ever working in any aspect of that sector. I think it was a 10-year ban or something. It may not have been that long. And so I had no choice now. If I'm going to work cl- clinically, and I've only just qualified, what do I do? Now, interestingly, as I'm in the i mean it's just the first time it's happened to me and I, oh my There's a little thing in the newspaper too the local paper oh my god it's just terrible um and of course the rumor mill gives a very different story to what actually happened mm. um i got a phone call from a lead clinical manager from another health authority mm. to say um i've heard about you and i said <laughs> really? i don't want to say um I was just in a meeting where you were being discussed and they were gathering further data on you to bring a prosecution oh my god she said i don't like what i'm hearing um and i would like to offer you a job and i started the following week in a different health authority so i I literally in those next few days packed up my stuff and i moved Um, Mm. and that's how i ended up where i started then working Mm. and unfortunately i never saw that manager again Um, i knew her name through a number of years she developed um, a brain tumor um, and was off work by the time I actually started on her unit. And so mm. I never saw her again. Um, but that rescued me initially from quite a, a difficult patch. Yeah. And then later on, of course, as I'm getting a lot more vocal, I had a lot of supporters um, who did protect me or offer me alternative employment. So that mm. was useful. And I don't mm. think any, any, everyone would get that lucky. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm quite still looking back. I'm quite surprised I was that lucky.
0: Mm. So... <clears throat> Interf- interesting you said um, so uh, uh, talking about <laughs> narcissistic traits and I think we might have even had this discussion recently uh because obviously I yeah I'm um, you know I've been looking at some of uh, uh Vaknin's work and it is bloody brilliant um and and it was the idea that because I always felt like quite uneasy watching some of his videos because so I was like like I felt like I could. I recognise that within myself. Yeah. I think we had a discussion, and maybe we can talk about this for a minute. That the, <clears throat> there's a difference between <clears throat> being a narcissist and having narcissistic traits, and I, you know, that kind of thing. So, what would you? Could you just expand it? You because you probably put it better than my words. Because um, I, you know, I've, you know, I've looked at some of the work. I thought, oh, shit. That's does this mean? My God, I'm a narcissist. You know that. You know but but in a lot of areas of many areas of my life you know are, you know like normal or functional or whatever um but you know there are a couple of things and when you hear them when i initially heard them it almost made me like i want to put that down i didn't want to watch it because it made me feel uncomfortable um but just yeah just talking about the difference between uh, having the traits and actually being a dyed in the wool
1: yeah narcissist so so the narcissist is just doing more of certain behaviors that everyone does and less of other behaviors that everyone does. So they have everything maxed out to, and, and often beyond certain thresholds. They're not some freak of nature that is completely different to everyone else. They've just got, everyone has different traits, tendencies of what you do more of in one thing and maybe less mm-hmm. of in something else, but across all of the human spectrum. So there's nothing in a narcissist that isn't in everybody else. It's mm-hmm. just the extent by which you do it. Mm-hmm. And there'll be some relationships we 've had there 'll be some things we 've done there'll be periods of times of our life where we can look back and go, "Oh my my trait bias in nar- the narcissistic trait bias were off the charts in that particular context, but that doesn 't mean the person is a narcissist. Mm-hmm. What Wagnern will suggest is the narcissist is those traits. The the difference being, so if I'm if if I'm dealing with say a schizophrenic who's got florid symptoms all over the place, or a profound depressed person who's they're gone. You can't. You know, essentially what I'm going to try and do is get through the the quagmire of the chaos to the person that's on the inside. when we know people we know well, we can see the mess that they present on the outside that other people see, but we know the person behind that person behind those traits. What Vaglin suggests is with the narcissist, there isn't anyone behind it. That, that's the, what you're seeing is the extent of what they are. There is nothing else. There is no person to break through and get behind. And that's the mistake people make in their relationships with narcissists. They think there's a person behind that and they can see the real person to fix that's them. the error so yeah. they're the primary differences but it's it's not that there's anything massively different so mm. when you when you listen to the, any of the lecturers that that talk about narcissism because there's a few others as well but i think vaccine is absolutely the the most expert that, I, that i've come mm. across he's talking it sounds like he's talking about you or yeah. for the person who doesn't have self-insight it sounds like they're talking about everyone you know
3: Mm.
1: because because actually every everything he's talking about is stuff that everybody does it's just the extent Mm. by which people do it
0: so i i one of the recent videos i thought i saw and i thought god that's just so insightful was the the uh um about victimhood and it was all about how victims are you know it becomes integrated this idea of being a victim is is um Almost like a badge of honour, which is kind of fairly commonplace. But then <clears throat> they'll they'll use that to manipulate situations so that so that actually the victims end up not being the victim because they'll have manipulated the situation so they'll they'll have won that interchange or that exchange or whatever, um, yeah. and uh, and still and still by wearing this this like the cowl of being the victim that they it's almost like it's a form of narcissism isn't it it's like it, it, if it's fully developed and and i think Becklin also talks about how that um quite often uh narcissists are, are have been damaged or wounded at some point in their past you know whether that was necessarily by another narc or whatever i mm. uh, i i can't remember what he says about that um but i thought the whole the whole idea of you know like victimhood being you know this almost like this toxic identity um, that, that people will, will play out in their lives in order to garner attention and, and manipulate people's feelings is, is, is bloody terrifying. Really.
1: The things the things to look for when you when you've got somebody who's assuming the victim position are they also is it is it a victim position combined with moral superiority mm. and that is the classic narcissistic game. Um, So whenever they don't get what they want, they immediately make themselves the victim of you. And that's when the Mm. counter accusations come in. Mm. And of course, the narcissist will accuse their target of everything they themselves are doing. Mm. And if they get in there first, and I've got personal experience of being on the receiving end of this, if they get in there first, it's very, very hard now um, to actually say that's not true. Because the the, the viewers, the, the the third parties to this drama, they don't know what's going on, and whoever gets the accusation in first is the one who feels they got the upper hand. Mm. Combined with moral superiority as well, it is quite remarkable. Mm. Um, yeah, it's fascinating to watch.
0: It, it's it's really weird how I think maybe maybe last year, year before, uh, the the buzzword <clears throat> was. Um, in sort of pop psychology was gaslighting and kind of yeah. this year it, it's narcissism and stuff like that and it's and it's just like well these concepts have actually been around a bloody long time like why are they just why are they only sort of blossoming now is it something to do with social media i kind of think it might it be
1: yeah but the but the, the therapy communities move in in w- with fashions so i i'm fairly convinced the whole the gaslighting thing that became very popular um, it was being talked about in, in in clinical psychology it became a bit of a fashion trend there yeah. but in the sort of the personal development nlp type world you had individuals like richard grannon who's worked with with sam mm. Baknin. now he's quite a charismatic speaker um and i i've really enjoyed his his youtube channel and because he's on the into the domain of the personal development scene because that's you know one of his areas of, mm. of background there was a, a way in to it made that work accessible to people within the personal development scene, mm. because, okay, they're on YouTube, on social media, and we see this guy, mm. he's quite charismatic, he's talking about these things. And so yeah. everyone likes to jump on the bandwagon. Mm. I mean, you remember when it was mirror neurons, everyone was talking yeah, about mirror yeah, neurons, yeah. everyone, I mean, yeah. back in the 90s, it was always the amygdala. Um, yeah. Do you remember the drama triangle from a few years ago, yeah. everyone went into the drama triangle? Yeah. Um, therapists love to move with the fashion trend and they're immediately the expert in it yeah. and most of the time they demonstrate they know absolutely nothing at all yeah. um, but that doesn't matter to them because they, they're, they're demonstrating that I'm, I'm an enlightened coach because I, the superficiality the the lack of depth into the knowledge and the personal relationships the the individual has is another classic trait of the narcissistic Mm. personality. Mm. They don't have depth of knowledge. They don't have depth of anything. Mm. And their emotions are pretty shallow too, which is why they flit from one thing to another. I saw people on Facebook when the clapping for carers was a big thing over here. Um, They were like putting up videos of, of their neighborhood where everyone's out the windows clapping. Isn't it a beautiful thing? Two weeks later, who are these idiots? They should be giving them a pay rise, not clapping for them. Mm-hmm. And they flip mm-hmm. around because the, the fashion trend shifted somewhere else. And then they all jump on that. Mm-hmm. But they've forgotten the posts from two weeks ago were giving the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Superficial lack of continuity, another narcissistic trait, no continuity to relationship, which is why you have to build rapport with them every time you meet them.
0: So on social media, you, you recently took uh the steps to i would say radical steps but actually i don't think they're that radical they're probably fairly common sense uh of where you basically retreated from or didn't re- retreat but just deleted facebook deleted social media other than youtube which obviously you're using as a platform to create content do you want to just just talk about that because um i <sighs> on my on my you know i go on my runs and i and i often sort of like churn things over and i just thought sort of like, oh you know it's like less and less i'm edging towards that kind of like that in en- la- 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 where i la- i'm lacking engagement with some of those things yeah. because i i actually i actually started to find that my own mental health was suffering um when i lost my dog and obviously i did find her but um I then became, you know, quite involved in sharing lots of posts. And, and, and even on Christmas, you know, I was out actually physically looking for a dog. And, I, and it's something that if I'm available in the area, I'll always do. Um, but, but I found that entrenching myself to the degree that I was, it was actually starting to affect my, my, my well-being. And I was like, fucking hell, I'm like tearing up and crying and like getting super upset about this. I need to kind of withdraw from it and then there was this guilt that i was like well but you know you're you're not you've you've got a job to do there was a whole dynamic that was quite interesting Um, but but so, and for some people so so where i'm sort of veering towards that and i know obviously you, you you've gone the whole hog and you've like you know powered down on a lot of those things but for some people that would be almost like an impossible wrench like it's become so tightly right. woven into like coffee Facebook. You know, it's a thing. It's a it's like a, a real societal well, not paradigm that's maybe too, but it's certainly a strong frame that a lot of people, oh, they get into if they work in an office, they'll get into work, have a cup of coffee, check Facebook, and then they'll start it. like how the f- did that happen? And, and you know, by what,
1: incrementally what your, by yeah. very slow increments that happened. It didn't happen Insidiously. gradual yeah. process. Mm. Yeah, so here's what happened for me. It was a perfect storm of different events. So I was becoming aware that I was addicted to to social media, that if I went without it, I started to like, it was, oh, I've not looked for 10 minutes, when I'd find myself on a beautiful summer's morning, the sunrise is coming up, it's a beautiful summer's morning, I'm walking the dogs on the beach. Mm -hmm. And what am I doing? I'm locked into the infinite scroll. And that is the, the infinite scroll was the, the final step that got everybody in because there's no social cue to say, OK, you've reached the end now. By making yeah. the infinite scroll discovered that people's screen time increased exponentially. It was insane. Mm-hmm. So I was increasingly aware of my own personal addiction. Mm-hmm. I was also becoming increasingly aware that my my ability to concentrate was gone. Um, I had a 10-second memory, um, if that. Um, I, I didn't read books anymore, didn't read anything. I, I was convincing myself that I was learning stuff by looking on Facebook. And essentially, I started to feel my brain rotting. I became aware there's something has changed in me, in my motivations, how I think, how I reason, my my animation, everything about me was different. And it's because I'm locked into the infinite scroll of superficial thing. Yeah. So then I started to examine what am I doing? Why? How am I justifying this to myself? And the way I was justifying it was this is a business requirement because this is how I promote my work. I'm actually only on social media. I had a good following. I used to get very high levels of engagement with my my posting. Um, and so it's a business model. And so there was a number of things happened. So I then put in all sorts of tracking agencies on on my all of my websites. So I could monitor where the money is coming from, where my work is coming from, where my my sale, online sales and where my booking for client work is coming from. I could track what web pages people are people looking at, how they're looking. I did complete data analysis, for, I think, for two or three months. Now, as that data started coming in, and I couldn't mistake the fact that 80% easily, 80 plus percent of my time was spent on social media, less than, I'm, I'm trying to remember now i don't have the exact this is figurative less than say five percent of all income and traffic was coming from social media and that's appalling especially when i'm also spending quite a lot of money on social media advertising and i couldn't see any justification for continuing that expense it wasn't wasn't carrying across at all so that that was happening in the background then uh the film the social dilemma um, oh. that came out and lots of people were talking about that and I hadn't seen it yet and I watched it and I was like okay this tells me I need to delete and then the next day or actually this might be the other way around there was the incident where I made a comment on a post <laughs> it's like what am I doing I don't even know this person it's on a local forum I make make a very derogatory and quite um, quite nasty comment on somebody's post that what they were doing was a scam. They've been scammed, don't be so fucking stupid, all that kind of stuff. And the next thing I know, this has cut across into the real world. (laughs) Because I thought this person would be miles away. No, they're just up the road. And he's big, he's scary, he's Scottish, and he's really, really angry, really, really angry. And so is his other half, and oh my God. So essentially, I then spend three days hiding.
3: (laughs) <laughs>
1: just, yeah. this is where it gets the theater of the upset laura was so angry um i was so so angry the, what have you done it's like oh gone too far and and of course those three days i know i know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna have to deal with him i'm going to have to deal with him mm. but there's no point in dealing with him he's calmed down a bit because i i value my face my beautiful face <laughs> yeah, yeah um so that and that's what i did and essentially what i did was the last act before deleting all of my social media was to message this guy have quite a lengthy conversation with him offer profuse apologies and i, and t- I told him i told him what had happened to me uh, So the reality is this has actually come as a a useful experience for me because it's made me wake up this has if he hadn't done that i would probably have found excuses to carry on the social media um but those three days of of being slightly afraid certainly um actually more sorry, certainly did um Solidify the decision in my head, and a complete introspection and and reevaluation of what have I been doing for the last four years? You know what have I been doing in the? It locked into the influence scroll, and it, it. My last act was to talk to him remotely uh, three met, not in real life, um, and then tell him I'm now deleting everything, uh, I'm, and that's exactly what I did, and I will never reanimate it, because the cost the cost on the brain, the brain rot, it brings is mm. too high.
2: Mm. Do you think so? And,
1: so? and so people think I'm very brave for doing that. Oh, how can you live without it? Well, just like somebody who's addicted to any addictive drug, they can't imagine life without the drug. Mm. Yet there was a time they didn't take it.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm. Yeah, and, exactly. and I, you know, they, like I don't drink alcohol, I used to drink a lot of alcohol, mm. I don't drink alcohol at all now. Mm. Um, and that was one of the one of the things I, I learned, I went and did the Alan Carr Easy Way to Stop Drinking um, oh. thing. Brilliant, by the way, absolutely brilliant. Alan Carr, oh. Stop Smoking, Stop Drinking. Not the books, go and do their one-day event. Um, because within, within the hour of being there, I knew I was never going to drink again. Because the stuff mm-hmm. they said was so obvious. I would mm-hmm. never thought it before. Mm-hmm. And I can apply the same logic from the, that they taught on the alcohol course to mm-hmm. social media. Mm. people think that they 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 need it in their lives but there was a time they didn't have it and their life was better mm.
0: so so like um <clears throat> the sort of hearing you speak you know like it came to that it there was a crescendo where you know it was like oh my god this this has gone from the virtual you know overlapping into the real ones like you know scary scottish men you know that are That have got big muscles and own swords, you know, are knocking at my door and stuff like that. And um, but so that's almost like a like a massive pain point, if you like. But but before that, you spoke about this this growing sense of awareness of addiction and stuff like that, and um, and brain rot and stuff like that. And like, do you think we all have that sense of awareness? Because you spoke about introspection as well. Like, are there any kind of like I suppose. uh, insights that you can give about how to have introspection without it becoming some sort of negative bloody spiral of, you know, self deprecation.
1: I don't know, because the evidence to my senses is, is that most of these training programs that are designed to give you personal freedom and all the rest of it, mm. most mm. of them fail. Because mm. look at the look at the adherence to those systems, they just enslaved by something else. Mm. And People have, see, one of the things these social media companies offer is the same thing that the drugs offer they soothe, Mm -hmm. they reduce anxiety, they make you feel that you've got a companion, they make you feel better about yourself. Mm -hmm. And largely, that's what people would rather do than face the darkness of themselves. And I think this is why the, the, the social media companies have fostered narcissism, narcissism or expressed narcissism. Doesn't mean the individuals are actually narcissistic, mm-hmm. but what they're expressing is narcissistic because the, the yeah. Photoshopping of your own reality, you know, one day may your life be as great as you pretend it is on your social media accounts. Mm-hmm. And that kind, of, that kind of thing is fostered. And because now I, my public face my self image to everyone else is Mm. perfected Mm. they never actually see me in real life because here i am in my living room here i am in my bedroom and they never get to see the real me Mm. i'm soothed because my public image my projection of self is Mm. better than i'm actually able to achieve in real life Mm. how many people in social situations to soothe themselves they try and show their best side they try Mm. and show their perfected side they don't show their genuine nature, their Mm. true nature. Mm. Social media allows us to to take that even further to to its logical conclusion, which is here is a completely airbrushed reality. And that's the self I want to project. Mm. So what advice would I give people who are trying to better themselves? Stop lying. Mm. Just tell the truth about who Mm. you really are to Mm. yourself. Mm. And a lot of people Can't handle the truth. (laughs) Just to steal the light. They can't handle it because to acknowledge the truth themselves has to be to acknowledge the the Mm. they're not the greatness they have pretended to be. Now Mm. here's the problem. So I've built up a persona all these years. How do I now tell everyone that was all a lie?
2: Mm.
1: And here is who I really am. Well, don't bother telling anyone, just stop maintaining it, just stop maintaining persona. And Start now just being honest. You don't have to do this kind of I've been lying about who I am, because everyone else is too. Everyone's lying. They've all everyone's got this persona the whole time. The trick is to drop the persona, drop the bullshit, drop the the narcissistic traits, and actually just be who you really are and Mm -hmm. stop projecting yourself to everybody. For a lot of people, they would instantly be plunged into a world of loneliness. Yeah. And that's terrifying because we feel like we have friends. So I've got 5,000 friends on, on Facebook and I've got 18,000 followers on Twitter. Yeah, Have you met any of them? Mm. Would you want to meet any of them? Mm. Probably not. So they're not friends. They're the illusion of friends that is that is fostered so carefully by the social media companies who are constantly split testing. Add a variable to this group of 5 million people, add a different variable to this 5 million people who connects and clicks the most. Okay, so that variable gets the most results now introduce new variable as we roll that change out across the platform, constantly split testing for which one creates maximum engagement, because these companies don't want you to have a life of your own. They want you to be fixated on the screen. But just like the alcohol companies who put on the drink responsibly, and they, they give donations to the alcohol rehabilitation units, you know these token little things out of their, their massive profits, they pretend to have a social conscience. They don't they, mm. it's not about having a social conscience It's about getting the money because it's the attention economy where well, they they are quite happy
0: it, it's I, like the um, the the gamble aware it's like they show like the shiny spinny reels are like whoa like you know like yeah. visual kind of candy like the spinny, shiny, and all the lovelies animated golden coins and, and you know your tongue is hanging out going oh i'd love to have those golden coins and I think they're appealing to a sort of a childhood element as well in there. And then they go, gamble responsibly.
1: You know, it's just like... There's another, there's another issue. And again, if I, if I just borrow Sam Vaclin's term of the shared fantasy. So the shared mm-hmm. fantasy is a reality we agree on that's not actually real, but it's the fantasy yeah. we live. And a shared fantasy is always going to emerge in any close relationship between people.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And so we all have our different that's why you get what the family madness. You go to that family, they live in a completely different reality to that family. Yeah. And then you look at your own family's shared reality, it's completely bonkers. It's how it's how people are. Mm-hmm. The matrix is a common theme or meme for people because the matrix is a really good metaphor for this kind of stuff, which is essentially if reality has all this suffering built into it, and we have the perfect matrix why would you want to come and deal with the real cold hard reality when you have this illusory reality that is just as real in every possible way <laughs> now what is the superior human experience to be sat having the infinite scroll barraged with sound bites of information and, and, and key headlines and pretty pictures and all the, the the fabricated reality or sitting under a tree looking out upon a river where you might get bored after 10 minutes Or you should be outside in the fresh air, as though somehow outside in the fresh air is the superior experience to have. But it isn't. The augmented reality that is served up by technology is the superior, more enjoyable, more fun experience, because we can eliminate all the real world negative things and the negative things that say virtual reality offer or social media offer are illusory, so they can be fun. Here's the problem. Is it actually superior to be on the outside in a green field or is it a superior experience to be locked into the infinite scroll? Why is one better than the other? Well, it's not one. Is, it is not being outside. is isn't the superior and it's not necessarily better, but what has the greater long-term cost on the individual? And now just look at some of the individuals who are living their life on social media. Look at some of the values they hold, some of the things they... I mean, just look, it's gone now, but parlor.com. So this became the refuge for all the people that were being... all the sort of right of center people. And it doesn't take much now to be labeled an alt-right, fascist, neo-Nazi, whatever. I posted a Jordan Peterson video once, fascist, me? (laughs) why it was really good if you watch the video i know all about him he's all right okay mm. so all the all the people that were de-platformed well, they all migrated over to parlor mm. which then became the platform for free speech free speech free speech they all like to say that when i joined parlor because so i thought this could be interesting oh my goodness it was just as bad if not a thousand times worse actually um mm. because now you've got all the people who've gone to these extremes for for stuff and they all think they're right, just like the, 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 the crazy liberals all think they're right. Everyone thinks they're right. I don't think that level of craziness would have been seen without social media. Mm. But trying to get those people to give up their reality and come out of the matrix into the cold, hard, brutal reality that's not quite as pleasing with instant gratification where you have to work at it. People don't mm. want to do that. They they, yeah. they they enjoy their shared reality that's facilitated by their social media companies. It's very hard for people then to go. Well, life is a bit shit. Yeah, I'll go and live. It, it is quite boring, isn't it? When we haven't got endless screens, life can be because we've solved we've solved the problem of boredom. Mm. But and the, now I, I, to take I, that away from people, we return them to elements of boredom.
0: But it's something that you said there, which sort of rang home for me, which is like. Because yeah, okay, there's fun, but there's also like truth. And the truth is that you actually, while while these things are, you know, they're they're um, you know, sort of micro stimulating, you know, your brain, you know, with little hits every time you get a notification ding and all the rest of it. Ultimately, you have to eat. Ultimately, you do have to sleep. Ultimately, you do have to, you know, go to the bathroom. You know, these are real world functions that that they haven't fixed how to do that, you know, unless there's some upgrade where we lobotomize you when we take away your bowel function and all the rest of it. And so they that's where they until people's well, I suppose this then speaks to uh you know, the sort of uh people integrating technology into themselves, where there is that never-ending uh, feed that they get and you know i mean you know some of the cyberpunk stuff sort of talks about that but it's this idea of truth and the way social media is not wanting us to present truth unless it's through them you know and and i think yeah the whole thing about truth is is like. People say, oh, what's your truth?" Well, my truth is this, and and then, but then they're using social media to sort of present that, uh, whatever that truth is, and in either way, it's it's very insidious the way the way it is used. Uh, where do you see it going? where do you see it ending up the whole social media do you think that it well, will continue to i think grow, i think
1: it's short-lived no i don't i don't think this is because i'm not one of these apocalyptic visionaries that everything's going to end things are constantly changing in a fashion now technology is always going to be progressing that much that much i get but Pay attention to what the kids are doing these days. Um, and they are, see, one of the things about the, the youthful mind um, is, especially when they're slightly rebellious, they don't like being told what to do. And they will hack. They will find what something does and find alternative uses for it. It's a classic thing that the, the young mind does. It's like, OK, we can find alternative uses for, that, uses for that. What they've done with with social media, what is happening in terms of the commercialization of it, an area that so many adults aren't aware of is twitch.com now i've been this is something i've been looking at quite a lot recently so where are the young people in terms of this technology what are they doing Mm. twitch.com reveals something really i think really profound look at the most popular streamers so who are the people who are getting tens if not hundreds of thousands of followers every time they go online Mm. most of them are gamers They are literally individuals just playing a computer game while their screenshot of what they see is being streamed with a camera at them and they're in the corner and they're just periodically talking. So any adult looking at that, they're going, how would you sit for hours watching that? Where's the entertainment? others it's you get younger people who've got some creative stuff so a lot of younger musicians are are doing stuff they get a good number of followers on there as well but they're not doing so much music they're doing more just chit chat and nothing of in-depth or anything is happening and again the adult can look at that and go well why are kids doing that so we've got recreational spectator sports of Mm. computer gaming Mm. how's that different to a football match there's that element but also people are ostensibly listening to music or seeing someone who's creative, but they're not really doing anything creative. They're just talking. Here's what they are doing. This is what the kids are doing. It's about connection and companionship mm. and something, and, and for me, Twitch and the success of the individuals on Twitch reveals why broadcast media deserves to die i got i will have no sympathy for any of the especially in the uk any of the broadcasters whose services disappear from lack of funding because they've missed something fundamental remember back in the 70s and 80s when people did spend hours and hours on the tv watching the tv that was the primary focus that people did uh, before they shifted their focus from that screen to a different screen the screens just got higher definition and a lot smaller it seems Hmm. The TV was largely live broadcast. You had continuity announcers in between shows. Because what might happen is a show might end a minute or two earlier, earlier and the yeah. next one's not allotted till on the hour and so there's 2 or 3 minutes of dead space that has to be filled and you had live continuity announcers who would talk and people had their favorite continuity announcers. A lot of the daytime shows were were live. But weren't the noise, stay tuned after the break, we have coming on. And this kind of hyper excitable personality who Mm. often isn't too articulate and they're not being selected for their IQ. They're selected Mm. for their visual appearance Mm. Um, or whatever political quota they need to fill. What, to, to see this and for real, whenever the BBC have a disabled person um, presenting to camera on any of their new shows, you will notice there is always the classic shot where they're talking, the camera pans away and moves around just for a moment, just to let you know they're in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And then they go back to allowing them to continue talking like a normal mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. There's something about that. So. So the agenda of the broadcasters is not about connection. It's about keeping eyes on the screen, keeping the hook, keeping everything dumbed down. You remember the children's programmes from the seventies, where you had things like Jack and Nori. You had there were various things where um, think of a number, Johnny Balls, think of a number, Zoe Balls' father for the the, hmm. the younger younger viewers here. Hmm. There was largely grown ups talking as a grown up. To a child, in an instructional way, in an informative way, not noise, noise, noise. Everyone run round and scream and keep the noise and pizzazz, 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 pizzazz. Broadcast media is falling into attention, the attention economy. Go to Twitch. That's not what the kids are watching. Yeah, what they are doing is they're connecting with people where people talk like a normal human being to another person talking like a normal human being and broadcast media and social media has lost that it's the attention economy has forgotten something important and so that's why i think the the age the average age of the user of of things like facebook is going up every year as kids are not signing up for it and the the aging population are continuing to use it
0: it's it's interesting because uh I, I was uh, the other day, uh, I, I, I don't know if you've got Sky or any of these kind of like other channels, but there's this one called Yesterday. And it's, oh, it's brilliant, because it has the tales of the Roll Dahls, the tales of the unexpected. Do, 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 do. Anyway, um, and it was, it was amazing. It was a really interesting one, because it was, it was a story about this, this, um, he was an art critic, and he had his wife, and his wife was painted by this guy. And the way this guy paints is he, he he gets the woman to to stand there nude and he paints her nude, and then he says now go and put a camisole on. Then he paints her in the camisole, and and so on and so. On. And this was kind of like integral part of the story. But what was fascinating was that the actors were all people in their fifties and sixties, and it's like there was like the the bitchy woman who wanted to sleep with the art critic, and and like you know she had like the that you know, and it's like, hang on, she's being sexual, but she's clearly in her mid to late 50s. You just don't see that now. It, or If you do, it's like, it's like, it's like um something which is to create a uh, almost like, like a pariah something to, to be a joke. Oh, look, they're being sexual. And they're in their more mature years where well, here, you know, if you watch TV now, it's all People in their sort of 20s and 30s and they're sexy and they're nice looking and all the rest of it. Whereas it was staggering, like these were crusty old goats that were talking about their relationship. And it's like, well, you know, and, and I even noticed that I was kind of, I was like, oh, it's really nice to see people that are old, but I was like, oh, they're kind of talking about sort of sexy stuff, and they're kind of like in their 60s and and it was like, and it was so it was like this massive contrast of how the media's changed, and it's like, because you know, it's 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 nature and it's a fact that a young 20-year-old person is gonna look better than a crusty 60-year-old person. That's just you know, the human condition and of craving, you know, like this or some vampiric kind of nature towards youth and you know and all the rest of it. And I just thought, God, that you would never see I don't, well maybe you would, I don't know. Maybe it'd be like a subplot in like a soap opera, and you know, like where the old crusties are kind of having a relationship, but really. It would never take pride of place in, in 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 a big show that you know it was just about old people. It's like no, like once you're fifty or sixty, it's like you can piss off to Saga and you know just go on cruises and and all the rest of it. It's just like God, you know. That's how we are. That's how we're. And I don't want to use the phrase, or oh, we're being programmed, but you know I think there's something to that. How because we can't help but be conditioned if if this stimulus is always. Young people, beautiful people, sexy people, shiny people, made-up people, perfectly lit people. How can we? How can we not get conditioned by that? You know right. what I mean. And
1: you see this a lot in if if we start sort of penetrating the veil of of t- TV companies, TV shows. In something I was aware of in in because I'm a regular visit, visitor to India. On oh, in well, Indian TV, most of the presenters are white. They look Indian, but they're completely white. And a lot of the models in all the fashion shoots you see in all this, they're all white as well, they again, they're white Indians. And I could never understand that. How, do, how do they manage to license the skin so much? And the advert breaks. Every second advert is for a skin lightening cream of some description, which is largely just sunblock. They put lemon in it because it helps. It doesn't really make the skin any fair. So Indian culture is fixated on basically not being dark. And the lighter you are, the more attractive you are. Well, most of those models and those TV presenters are not Indian. They're actually they import them wholesale from Uzbekistan. Because in Uzbekistan, they have very similar um, physical features, but obviously they have white skin. And so they could be made to look Indian very easily. And these actors will speak with an Indian accent, but they're not from India. And yet that's being marketed to people on every TV network that has the money to be able to import these people um, as though this is the aesthetic ideal. In the US, I don't think you'll ever see any female on any TV show in any capacity or movie that has the nose she was born with. No, I, I think one day in America, a baby will be born and they go, oh, that poor little child, look, he's got a nose, let's just cut that off. Yeah. Literally, just cut the nose off at birth. Why not we start there? Because what is it about the nose it has to be so tiny, like a little button, it's okay, so oh, for God's mm. sake. There's mm. this absurdity. You'll never see anyone on British TV is not Botox to the hilt and, and yeah. heavily made up. You'll never see any female presenter wear the same garment of clothing twice in a lifetime. Yet they will also espouse progressive liberal values around social identities. They will talk about um, global economic and, um, pollution issues and sustainability and yet they are filling landfill the thing about cotton fibers and and world pollution is horrendous and yet they're major contributors to this because no one ever wears the same item of clothing twice and that's every tv every tv station in every part of the world that's insane and yet this is an important thing that they present they're all massively made up they're all you know it's everything is 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 fake whilst they espouse values that say you're okay being you but, hey, look at us. It's absolutely appalling. And people don't think to question these things and switch it off and go and do something else with their lives. Yeah. People are caught up. It's just like the Matrix. It's a preferred version of reality. And so people are quite happy to share that fantasy. Yeah. And that's what traps people in it. They they enjoy the fantasy. And they, if we can make the fantasy real, even better. Oh, what a fantastic yeah. way to live.
0: So so you spoke about um uh India and I know that you've had a long love affair with India and and I um I have I haven't been to I've been to s- some areas in, in Southeast Asia but I haven't actually been to India. How did that all start for you and like? Because it's not, I suppose, as a young person, if you're you know you're you, you're you're doing a certain trail or you know you 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 know your your year you know your your gap year, it might be something that that would have an appeal. But you you haven't just done that you gone back again and again and again and you still do and you've sort of got this relationship with the country that you that you that you sort of keep up like what's that all about
1: I think they were, they, when I first went, I had no, absolutely no idea what I was going to. I, I, I see when I talk to, to, to Indians and their notion of England, they think of England as we sit around on a, on a lawn being served tea by butlers under a, a willow tree that's leaning over a lake, and uh, watching people play cricket or bowls on the lawn. The people have this romanticized notion of other countries. Hmm. I had yeah. something similar of India. <laughs> uh, but, and I, 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 when I first flew there, I arrived in the middle of Mumbai, um, although oh, still, i think it's still bombay back then mm. um into the middle of the slums where before they cleared the slums of mumbai and oh my god I'd never seen anything like it never i was like i had stepped onto an alien planet and it was absolutely terrifying i spent six weeks there on my first trip mm. and i was terrified every single day that i was there mm. and it, it's one of those weird things because even though i was completely terrified of everything and everybody Everything made an impression on me. And then as soon as I got home and calmed down, I couldn't wait to go back again. And then actually start exploring it from a much better frame of reference. Um, and yeah, and I just, the other one, of course, was I hated, I hated my job. Um, and I I didn't really enjoy the life choices I had made. And rather than do, (laughs) being young and stupid, rather than do something about those life choices, because I was always in conflict, working at the hospital, I was constantly in conflict. Mm. Rather than do something about those life choices, I would regularly run away. And of course, back then, the Indian Indian economy being as it was, a thousand pound could last me easily six months, maybe longer. Mm. Um, So it was very easy to save up my money and then just go. Um, And so in part, it was a runaway, but the other one is, it's the colorfulness, the the food, the people, the the lifestyle. Um, they get a lot right there. It's a lot of problems in so the country, can't tonight, but they've got a lot right. Yeah.
0: What was the uh, story? I remember you telling me a story that, that I'd be in stitches and it was something about a taxi and a yeah. moped and
1: I'll tell a story. i mean this this is for me this is quite ridiculous but also it, it, it epitomizes so much of the kind of experiences that i'd have there so i always say to anyone if you want to if you want to have a complete adventure go to india and don't go to where all the backpackers go don't go and hang out in goa with all the in you know, all the english sports bars don't do that go away from where all the tourists go and actually go and meet locals and, and, and go with what locals recommend and what you do. You have a a totally different experience. Mm -hmm. Most people go where all the backpackers go and hang out with other backpackers the whole time. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't always do that. Um, and I was, I don't even remember where I was now, but I was traveling with a chap, an American guy who was on the same sort of trail that I was going on. And he had gone into the bank to change his traveler's checks. Now, this was pre digitization of everything, so changing money you you're looking at the better part of half a day sometimes, depending on where you are because everything is done manually and by phone mm. they didn't have any of the automated systems in you know in parts of the country While i'm what i'm waiting for him um i'm standing out on the on the on the pavement and i've just spoken a cigarette and um just taking in the the quiet, the solitude of, of the place. And down there on the road, I could see this man on a moped. Now, not everyone <laughs> should ride mopeds just because they it's they, available to them. The best way I can describe this guy is he had no idea what he was doing. If you stuck a cow on a moped, he would have the same ability as a cow would. And I could <laughs> see him kind of locked into this kind of, I don't know what I've got into and I can't. And I thought, I see him coming my way and it looks like he's coming straight at me. And foolishly, I thought, oh, well, he'll stop. He'll stop. And as he comes bearing down on me, he doesn't stop and he just knocks me straight over. And then he, he comes off the bike, a bit of a noise and he draws a bit of attention. Now, I'm fairly angry and incandescent, actually, that this man I'm standing on the pavement, it's a completely open, empty road and he just rubbed me over. I take his keys. And I throw... I just hurl the keys. And they, they land in this great... There's a great pile of rubbish on the other side of the road. And they land in this, this festering pile of, of stuff where cows are chewing the bananas <laughs> that have been thrown away and stuff like that. He starts getting a bit angry and starts making quite a lot of noise. and uh, wants me to go and get the keys. I'm, going, I'm not going to get the fucking keys. You go and get the keys. A crowd starts <laughs> to perform. As the crowd performs, he's now performing to the crowd, as happens in some of the rural parts. You take your argument into the marketplace and essentially, people have a row, and then a, plead their case to the marketplace and Essentially, whoever wins over the crowd wins the argument that 's what started to occur here as the crowd form um a, a police officer comes over, and i'm not sure he's a police officer the guys they dress in green they 've got a big stick, and i don 't know whether they're formal police or or what they are. I've never really quite understood the how the jurisdictions work, but he comes over he doesn't doesn't say much and um he kind of listening to this guy and he pokes me with the stick and i'm like is this what is this is this my prompt is this uh what is i don't i don't know what to do and at that moment a guy in a rickshaw pulls up alongside and he says get in <laughs> so i get in this rickshaw and he drives off and i'm thinking i don't know what happens next we drove around the block and all the way back around and now i'm at the other side of the crowd and he says all right you can get out now and i get out and people look at me and i said so what's happening <laughs> and they start to tell me the story of this this westerner <laughs> cuz they don't know it's me and i'm now at the back of the crowd it was the most the most absurd situation i have ever been in and beyond comical for it's just and for me that's just the classic india for me is the ritual driver thought i know what to do we'll take him out the front of the crowd and drop him back around the back no one will know it's him
0: that's quite benevolent, though, isn't it? I mean, that's quite yeah. a nice thing to do. I mean, I, I remember um, when I was in Thailand, and we, we, uh, a friend and I, we were going down to from, uh, gosh, where were we? I think we were quite north. I think we Bang- went from Bangkok down to the south of the country on the on the. I don't know what to call it other than the poor bus, which is a non-air-conditioned bus. People getting on with chickens in cages and stuff like that. And uh, I remember there was a young. A young couple and it was like a boy and a girl and they were maybe about you know 17 18 and and the bus would stop it was maybe about a 12-hour journey and the bus would stop every couple of hours to let people go off have a pee get some water or something like that because it was raging in there and uh and i think these two people you know uh they, this sort of I don't know a couple of brother and sister they they took pity on the two sort of phalanx and they're like they came back and we were like no we're not going to get off the bus this time and they came back and they they handed us Two bottles of water, and I think, as Westerners, we were like, "What's this? Where's what this kindness of which you speak?" You know what? You know, why would you do that? Is it have you have you stuck to Rohypnol? Stuck ro-hypnol in the in the water? And they were like, "We can see that you're kind of out of your depth, and you need a bit of a, a help." And and that was like, I was like, it sort of makes me a bit sad that that kindness to a stranger was. I had to go to the other side of the in world. Yeah. To experience it I'm sure that you know that that's uh you know there are probably uh stories contrary contrary to that you know here and stuff like that and and i've and i've witnessed that to some extent but um yeah it was just like it was just like strangers talking to me giving me things like what's the you know that's, that's i the kind think i
1: think sadly that will start to change because that that was that's been my experience of india too is the the yeah. kindness of strangers is the norm it is quite remarkable um what what compared to what would happen here i think as things industrialize become more technological as people become more middle class have more disposable income um indulgence is more important than generosity Mm -hmm. and we know i mean there's been enough studies that have demonstrated that essentially the less the lesser person has the more likely they are to share it yeah and there's been been some youtubers have have tried to rep this actually with great effect although they the purpose is that behind if you ask somebody if you go into a restaurant or go into an open air eating area and ask people for food most people won't give you a share of their food okay. but if you go to a homeless person and ask for ask for food they'll, they'll give you what they've got
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, because there's a, there's a strong empathy and a strong understanding but once people start to get resources of indulgence they, they become protective of those things and don't want mm-hmm. to lose it Mm-hmm. And I think, so I, I do think attitudes will change over time as they begin to import really what are the worst aspects of Westernization. Um, mm-hmm. As they see that as very modern and desirable, I think mm-hmm. they'll lose a lot of the stuff and end up a lot like us, mm-hmm. um, which is, is sad, but at the same time, then do we deny people progress in order to keep them yeah. kind? And because yeah, it's, it's the, that, that paradox, how do, how do we get a, a, a reasonable balance between um, indulgence and, and kindness? Um, yeah.
0: What was um, there was one other that well, I think there's a couple of stories that you've told me over the years that really stick in my mind. One, one I might come to you later. But there was another one, I think it was in India, where you thought <laughs> you thought that that you were, you were ushered onto a stage to give a lecture, no, to give a that training was, or so what was that? No, in no, no.
1: They, right, it's very long story short, I was up in the in the northeast. Corridor. Now, if you come out of India, Maine, and then you're into areas like Sikkim and um, I can't Nagaland. There's all sorts of areas where they're permit only, and so they they heavily restrict the access to to anyone to go in there. Oh. So often it's on a quota as well. So you had to get a per I had to get a permit. To go in. Absolutely. It's one of those things, everyone must go there before they die. It is the most stunningly beautiful area I could ever imagine visiting. It's just remarkable. So I in. I'm in this particular area. I've, I'm there for, I think I've got a 30 day permit to be there. And in this one particular town, absolutely stunning town. They they had told me of this particular monastery, um, that I could go and visit. To get to, that, I had to go down, down this hill here. And then basically there's a path that goes up through the hills. And it's pretty much half a day's walk. Uh, So that what they said to me is go at sunrise. um, Start walking because it's it's, it's a long way, a real long way. You can't mistake, you just stay on the path. Um, When you get there, uh, spend a little while, but start coming back very shortly after after midday, definitely before one o'clock, because you don't want to be caught out on the hills in the dark, because when it goes dark in India, it's like Ten past six, the sun is up. Quarter past six is pitch black. And Mm. it's just the nature of the closer you are to the equator, the Mm. faster the transition of sunrise-sunset. And so so I was cautioned heavily about this because there's no way of driving there. So I, they pack me up a lunch. These, the guys at the guest house they pack me up all, all my supplies, and I was I was I was very young and fit back then. And I start I start my march, and I get to this place, and it's like I've reached um, is it Shambhala, whatever it is Shangri? I don't know what the word is. Yeah. I've, I've reached this paradise that's in the middle of nowhere, and these people come out, and there's lots of children running around, Yay! like this, and and people are so grateful, gracious, and so pleased to see me it was like wow it's because i'm a westerner they've ne- probably never seen a westerner before Bless them. and and they, they i'm sat down and they take my shoes off and i've got somebody starts washing my feet now that's weird from someone like myself that's that's okay but i you know oh it's because there's so, a and then i i get given this robe And this big big thing and I take off I go and get changed and I put this robe on it's like oh this is nice this is this is quite an experience (laughs) and then I get led through I've you know I'm just going along with this thing in this completely colonial mindset of being you know oh it's because I'm a I'm because I'm English they treat me so and then these doors open And I'm led into a conference room. And it's a huge conference room. And there's all these people, they all look very important, um, from the Buddhist community, very important looking people around. And people start clapping. (laughs) And then I get handed by in a ceremonial way, this cup of um, salted butter tea. I'd never heard of that before. That was completely new to me, took a sip of it. And I jokingly said, don't you like me? Because it was absolutely disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. And I've got a microphone in front of me. And people start laughing. And I discover there is something gone wrong here. They think I'm someone else.
2: Oh my God.
1: They were actually expecting a, a German guy who was probably a sociological professor or whatever, who was arriving the same day. Um, because they were having some conference on on Buddhist thought, Buddhist philosophy. And I had just arrived at the the opportunistic moment and they thought I was him. And it goes now. I'm like, oh, because I'm. Re- I know the moment I've gone into this room that there is something is something's awry, and then I get ushered back out again. The robe comes back off, they give me back in my shoes. <laughs> it's like, yeah, thanks for coming. You didn't try nuts. and style it out. Actually, the, 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 a day or two later, that made a little feature in the local paper um, about Amazing. this Englishman who was mistaken for. I think it's a German, a German professor. Yeah. Very awkward. Yeah.
0: They weren't referring to you as a charlatan or anything like
1: that. No, it was just this ridiculous. It was just a little. It was a little tiny, little tiny piece. Mm. Um, but it was just one of those ridiculous moments of of perfect timing of you know being in the right place at the right time. Mm. It mm. kind of reminds me of that that fella who went for an interview at the BBC. Do you remember this one? He's famous, famous guy. He he was a driver and he was going for a job as a driver at the BBC and they mistook him for the expert and they usher him in to the studio and he's live. I remember that, yeah. Live on what what the topic was. It was something to do with technology or something. and absolutely. He was majestic. (laughs) I probably wasn't quite as majestic as he Mm. was able to carry that off. I think I just Mm. looked like a fool.
0: (laughs) So so like You are someone that has always struck me as being—you're quite transparent, and you're quite um, different in the way that a lot of people that have got that that will present, you know, whether it's a training or anything like that, or you know, speaking to camera, is you're you're um, quite—and this is quite interesting for me personally because you're able to speak about your shortcomings with. Quite subjectively, without doing what, which is what what I do, or trying to do less of, without feeling the need to to self-deprecate. How how do you do that? How do you? Because you, you've obviously demonstrated quite a good kind of level of introspection, but there's this, there's no, there doesn't seem to be, there seems to be very little kind of like um shield or a mask that most people have that you're quite happy to say, yeah, I was addicted to this or, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I had mental health issues and, and, and like, there's no kind of fear of, uh, I, I don't yeah. know, it's, it's lacking a fear of judgment. I don't know what it is. Uh, how, how do you do that?
1: No, I know exactly what it is. And, and in all honesty, this is only really, I would say the last four years. Um, oh. I think up until up until a certain point, about four years ago, well, thereabouts, um i was just like everybody else, if not worse huh. and that i would i would have a lot of bluster a lot of a lot of b s um a lot of yeah a lot of pretence um and and i started to become very very aware of that i think through the work that i do and through exam and learning always learning more stuff i i became i started to become aware um mostly of status i mm. it was an area that i i had completely missed in terms of my own personal development my own investigations and stuff and it came through a study of acting um through improvisation and acting where they they are very actors are very aware of status trading and status games now when i got introduced to that i thought this is the whole area of human potential human psychology human development that i had no idea of and i began to examine that in myself and i could see just how much how status obsessed i was Mm -hmm. how I was more interested in what everyone thought of me than getting on with the work. Right. And so I I began to do a very um, lengthy introspection on all of my status issues. Now, with the metaphors of movement work that I had developed at that point, and already had status in the metaphors of movement work, Mm. Um, I realized I I started to learn the extent by which people are status focused. Mm. And so by repeated examination of my status issues, I ended up becoming much more grounded. Right. Now, when people status issues are about elevation, when I elevate myself up, I want you to look up to me. I want to, I look down on other people, but I want everyone to look up to me. Um, I'm in an elevated position of importance. People fear being brought down. And there's this constant knowing that their position they can never progress from that position because they're in an elevated position they have to maintain it so struggling to maintain a safe position is very difficult um, and a lot of work and i realized that that was part of part of my internal machinations for the things i still wasn't happy with where i was still suffering anxiety issues for example i began to really notice just how much that was status related Mm -hmm. Once I had worked on that, I noticed the initial and immediate calming where I no longer had an anxiety I didn't know I had. It was only by the fact it wasn't there anymore did but I suddenly discover I had a background level of anxiety. Now, this mm-hmm. is how much my denial had gone into up until was it four years ago it might actually be longer now my, my my tracking of time is appalling it might actually be say six or eight years ago but whatever it was about this all happened i was still taking beta blockers right to go onto a stage in front of an audience to give any of my trainings on that first morning or if it was an evening presentation i would half an hour before take some propanolol in order to take the edge of the anxiety, that was what, the only what way. Is, I
0: could do it. What is that, Andy? I don't know what that is. It
1: basically blocks the, the action of adrenaline. Pre- oh, propanolol okay. is um, the other name for it. I can't remember now. It's it's basically an anxiolytic. It blocks adrenaline effects. And that's I, know, I had been using I had been using propanolol for years, many years,
2: mm.
1: and mm. I hadn't really noticed because it was so normal for me to do that. Mm. As soon as I addressed the status issues in myself. I never even felt the need for it anymore and then I immediately in the next presentation I gave I told everyone and and I've I've never now kept because I never told him before it's a a little secret I kept to myself and largely it was a secret I kept from myself as well which is Mm -hmm. insane that then enabled me to start to have a look at what else am I hiding from myself that's actually true about me that here's the reality did anyone else know that I was an anxious person? Everyone would have known everyone. you know, We're always the last one to know these things about ourselves. Everyone else knows. So I figured, what's the point in pretending? Um, and then I decided to take that to its, its, as, as the extremities I could take it to. What is the point of pretending? Let's just, let's just drop the whole pretence.
2: Hmm.
1: And, and as a result, um, life got a lot easier. And actually, I think people thought of me a lot better now because I'm no longer pretending.
0: Yeah, it's weird because I mean, I mean, certainly, you know, I've known you a long time and and rate you as a dear friend and stuff. And yet, I still think, you know, almost like your ability to be quite so transparent, I think is it almost is so fucking weird because it, it almost elevates your status, like, yeah within that kind of whole that whole yeah. uh paradigm you know it's like you know it's like almost like a transcendent i don't know i'm not blowing smoke up your ass or anything like that but but um within the the structure or, or the lens of status being able to like it's like going clear you know what i'm saying it's like, oh, always yeah, yeah. clear you know you're like he's able to see his own uh, so, so i think I and i think and i and I really like that and i think that that i like oh, sorry i like the, the ability to be able to be subjective about your own experience, without the feeling the need to like, deride it, shame it, or, you know, self deprecate or something, which is something that I certainly have been working on myself to, because I always thought, well, if I sort of put myself down before anyone else, I remember this. sort of, And I think this is how I I learned to be this way. I was always used to read comics and i used to love the x men and there's wolverine you know with his claws and um and he had this um phrase do it to them before they do it to you and i was like it's amazing these things that these kind of tropes and ideas that we use to really quite fundamentally structure up in persona what a, a little a little cartoon that somebody wrote and i'm like i'm basing an and a corner of my persona on this thing and um so this thing, this thing about do it to them before they do it to you, kind of like obviously he's like this super aggressive kind of like you know like a mutant and stuff like that. And I kind of that that sort of somehow worked within me where it's like if I put because I, I was obviously um, I was always quite um, insecure about the way I look because I I had um, scarring on my nose and I still do and I and I. Hopefully, I'm getting better, but I always used to be talk like that. So you get to see the pretty side, not the ugly side, because that's the bit where I've got a chunk out of my ear and the scar, and and the nostril isn't right, and all the rest of it. And so, I would always, in order to try and, um, what's the word? Diffuse, diffuse the bomb of uh, feeling insecure or or lesser or or um, um. Ugly, I suppose, yeah. Um, I would always kind of like, i, I, I wove in into the fabric of, of the way I present, you know, this self-deprecating thing, you know, where well, so you're
1: I'm always- So the ability yeah. for somebody else to do it on your behalf. You're taking yeah, exactly, the power yeah. away from the other person.
0: Yeah, yeah, so it's like, well, I did it to myself, so ha, you don't, so, and in a way it's weird because as I'm reflecting now, it's almost like I'm I'm taking the ownership of, of being insulted by insulting myself but but in the real world and in the grown up world less and less do people actually insult each other you know but it was something that from this it was like a uh, an artifact from childhood that and i think that it's it's just like what you're saying We're, i'm sure all of us have got these artifacts that, that are from childhood that we've we that are know just like if you get a bit of grit embedded into your hand the skin uh, grows over and it becomes almost part of you and it's like there are probably these artifacts that are within us that we like that we aren't even aware of because they're just they become such a default part of us Uh, and yet actually with the appropriate introspection and and then sadly hard work can we actually go on and and make sort of uh, change the mechanism the structure of those things it is bloody fascinating
1: really there's another area as well that i would urge everyone to to really examine and it's not it's not something you just think about one time and okay we've done that you know like on a on a personal development training course (laughs) um one of the things within personal development it encourages us to be fake
2: Hmm.
1: um most of these things are set up that you have to be bigger than life you can never just be yeah i'm all right you're just all right. I'm fine. Don't you know what fine stands for? And then something, you should be great. And there's this whole paradigm that, you know, you should be this epitome of greatness and success. It's utterly ridiculous. They even say, you know, with with these t- tools you can change the world. Most people can't even change their bed. You know, they can't even, <laughs> let alone change the world. But one of the other paradigms is the, the issue of shame avoidance. And this was, this is something yeah. I've been looking so much into in, in recent years is that so many people's behaviors, especially the egotistical uh, fakery of persona, that kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. they're actually trying to avoid the feeling of shame. Because uh, shame is one of the most intensely unpleasant emotions people can ever have, Mm -hmm. and they'll do anything to avoid it, including living a falsity their entire life. Mm -hmm. Because it's better to to live a falsity than be shamed for who you are now like guilt is always going to be about what we do but shame is very much about the identity and who we are and if i am not good enough by whatever measurements i'm measuring good against good enough against yeah. then i i i'm immediately prone to shame for not being that so i better yeah. act and be convincing with it in order to avoid shame. And that's one of the key areas. So, so I started really, really addressing um, shame issues in myself. And most of these things are absolute trivia. And they may not be things that have ever happened. Because, you know, I've, I've been troubled by so many things, and some of them actually did happen, but most of them never do. And, and shame avoidance is one of those things that what we think other people will, how they you know, how will be shamed by other people. We have a very much a shame, shame economy as well by social media, the calling out of people. Um, Absolutely. And I know people who know me on or knew me on social media may well have been on the receiving end of this. Where I tell them, what do you think you're doing posting that? Because like this man abuses dogs and there's a, fo- a vague photo of a man that no one knows who he is holding a dog or but there's an accusation and then a million people share it. Well, mm-hmm. what if that was you in that photo? And it's got nothing to do with the the stalker that posted it in the first place. It's got got nothing. Uh, No one knows that, but no one even cares because it's the burn the witch. Everyone enjoys a good witch burning. The the modern day shaming now, of course, is by naming and shaming, doxing, calling people out on the basis of what evidence. We don't need evidence. We just know there's no smoke without fire. Mm. And so we, we have that as a very powerful thing in our human archetypes. Uh, humans have always done that. The madness of crowds in burning the witch or stoning the, 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 the prostitute, whatever it is, is a strong archetype. And everyone likes a good stoning. Everyone likes a good burning. As a result, we must maintain a good social face at all times, lest mm. we be one of those people. It's, and whoever, whoever questions whether the witch is in fact a witch is now themselves accused of witchcraft and will be burned. So once the mob gets in, you can't you can't suggest some rational sanity because you're accused next. Mm. Now with that that was something I, I was witnessing on such a prolific level on social media for years, and it was a really ugly thing. Um, John Ronson wrote a book, so you've been shamed. It's, it's not what it, that's the the subtitle. It's called something else. That's well worth reading. Yeah. Um, and Russell Brand of all people, um, mm. his stand-up show, if you get a copy of it, um, The Messiah Complex. Oh, yeah. Absolutely remarkable. Absolutely. Mm. Those two, those 2 the, the book and the Russell Brand stand-up show, in combination, taught me a lot about shame and shame avoidance. Yeah. And so I started to work through what am I avoiding? Mm. And th- this is work I do with clients as well. And it's amazing how many psychological and emotional problems go away. And how much life improvement happens when we just deal with shame that's never happened. Because one of the one of the problems about therapy is they're always regressing to cause. They want to find, they want to find what in psychiatry is that we've got positive and negative symptoms. That's not good and bad. It depends on whether a positive symptom is a voice is is talking to me. That's a positive symptom. Something is additional to the system. A negative system is a lack of emotion, a lack of motivation. So that's when something is missing. Um, when we look at shame avoidance and we start to look at the effect that has on both positive and negative symptoms it is incredible the what results can be achieved in a person's life changes in such a short space of time and we're not regressing to cause because this is stuff that hasn't happened it's in a completely different paradigm and it's stuff I try and teach coaches and therapists but the, the yeah <laughs> um, i I keep saying I have to lower my expectations but I'm still despite my contempts um i do try and be optimistic and hopeful that possibly people can understand these concepts but this is a huge area for how do we drop the persona and be much more transparent to who we really are mm. study shane as a as a full subject
0: yeah um I, I remember we did we did some filming with some uh people a few It must be five years ago in, in, probably more than that and i remember the yeah that's right yeah oh god that was at
1: least 10 years ago Oh god maybe
0: and there was um and i was was fairly entrenched in the imt model and i'm going to talk about your work in a minute if we can um and there was one lady was very slim lady and i sort of done and, and tried to do some work with her and stuff and and then you you were sitting with her and it was you know they were they were willing participants and stuff like that and um and you did something that was like oh wow it was it was so um, bloody obvious, but it was away from the paradigm of uh, retros- uh, regressing to cause kind of thing, uh, which I, I know is you know is is obviously you know there, there's there's something to that, and and you were basically almost like future pacing and doing some IMT stuff, and we'll talk about what IMT is in a minute, but you're actually doing some stuff where it was like imagining something happening in the future and doing some work about that, even though that had never happened. And I thought that was really like, wow, that's really revolutionary. But actually, it's like, you're just moving in the other direction, because obviously, fear and anxiety is, is future orientated, to to some extent, at least. And I thought that was really interesting, um, that you've done that. But you know, the, the big model is, how did you learn to feel that way? And you know, we speak about that in IMT. And and yeah, and it, but it's all. It's also I think it's almost like, you know, How did you learn to fear what might actually not ever happen, but is still you for some reason you're holding, holding it very carefully, as uh, in the structure of your experience. As but it might, and so I have to be kind of like prepared and aware from that. So I, I thought that was really interesting. So, um, can you just talk about? Um, what you're doing now, and obviously the stuff, the models that you have worked on before, and I suppose, you know, this is really not not so much, you know, I this podcast I don't really care to have it go out to people who are in the sort of self-help industry. I just, I just fucking there's enough of that shit out there. Part well, I shouldn't really say that, but um, but so it's more for like individuals who are actually normal, whatever that means functional or dysfunctional human beings that how they could understand something like IMT your work, metaphors of movement, just talk about that, if you can.
1: Well, so the, the main the, the first body of work that I, I think I developed was really and formalized and formalizing and it was given a name is IMT, which is integral eye movement therapy. Now, that's a problematic name for for multitude of reasons It's too much a sound alike to eye movement integration which, ironically, is what I was calling what I was doing, um, thinking I'd come up with that name myself. I was so clever. I came up with a great sounding name, I moved and Integration, and it was only when I went to trademark it, I discovered that it was already trademarked. Oh, that's awkward. Oh, by Steve Andreas, and Ray Andreas came up with it, and i would already known them for a few years at this point. So now I have conversations with them, they tell me the history of how that came about. Now, the influences I had for the integral eye movement therapy was based around limited exposure to EMDR um, when I was still working at the hospital. And I was looking at the exceptions to when EMDR doesn't, basically, when, when doesn't it work? Why does it work so well for that patient? But for that patient, it didn't have any effect whatsoever. What are the qualitative differences between the two? And around the, the, the differences between those two things, I started to build some, some models of understanding. I was then experimenting with a number of areas of eye movement myself, and and IMT was then born out of that. After going on the road and and doing these experimental workshops that I was doing around around the south of England, and I, as it started off as two hours, and then with the data I got, it became three, and then more data became four. Then it became a day, and then subsequently, at the time I think I met you, it was then I was then working on the two day format, but yeah. still formalised it. It hadn't become what it is today it was in its still rudimentary form it's not just for anyone out there so is it the same as EMD? no it's not it's not the same as emdr in terms of the applications are entirely different and the models used are entirely different the only similarity it has is we're getting people to move their eyes Hmm. that's the only similarity Hmm. and it might say well they've got to be the same yeah well richard bandler's nlp is identical to freudian psychoanalysis because they both use words Mm. (laughs) there is no world of similarity between the two the the structures of the two models and so it's the same with IAMT and and other eye movement models Mm. so this was largely built around um, how not resolving trauma although that's an application of it how does traumatic experience shape largely personality Um, because we get imprinted on various ways of feeling and then we project those feelings out into the present and future experiences and that's the world we then live in and so with some very very simple work rather than focusing in on trauma we focus in on what supports the emotion you're feeling in the here and now and then work with that stuff And what the the observation is, is the remarkable speed by which people change and how long-lasting that is and how many changes people go on to make. Once they're liberated from a feeling they probably didn't even know they had, um, but it's been driving part of who they are at an identity level. And so that's what that was. Then, as I developed the identity work from that, the eye movements became less and less important. Patterns of chronicity, which is the central piece of, of the IMT model, which is how do people stay stuck, they still continue to be important. And I was looking at patterns of chronicity and identity, but the eye movements became less and less frequent. And I was becoming much more metaphorical with what I was looking at. Hmm. And so I, I co-presented a workshop with Sean Atwood. And Sean Atwood, is a he's quite famous now on YouTube. He's got a big channel. If you haven't seen his channel, it's worth watching. He was a former prisoner in the US. He was one of the US's biggest ecstasy dealers. And I'd done a number of conversations and some work with Sean, and we co-presented on a workshop, which by the way, is available on the IntegralEyeMovementTherapy.com website. And people can access that as an associate member. So you don't have to be a formal, formal member along with all the other material that's on there. At that workshop, I realized I wasn't doing the eye movements anymore. Um, I was doing something entirely different. I didn't know what I was doing. And shortly after then, I met up with Charles Faulkner. Um, and I had some conversation with Charles Faulkner that left me completely bamboozled. Such a clever man and so intellectual. And I have no idea what he, what did he say. What did he say to me? There's a, he said a lot, but I don't. I, so I then spent a year working out what Charles had said to me. And then the metaphors of movement work then started to emerge. And that's still developing. I mean, all these years later, I'm still finding new and new models. What
0: does that look like for people who have no idea what that means?
1: So this is listening listening to people in a very, very different way to what people would normally listen to Um, because an awful lot of conversation and communication is subconscious. It's below the conscious threshold. Mm -hmm. Your sentence structure, the idiomatic communication that you use. Idioms are everyday expressions that reflect shared experience. And within shared experience, we have common knowledge and shared knowledge. Mm. Shared is you know it and I know it, and common is we both know the other one knows it. Mm. So it doesn't need explaining between two parties. But with shared knowledge, I have to know if you know it or not, or if it's become common knowledge between two parties. Mm. So that's, a, that's an important principle too. Um, and we're utilizing how shared and common knowledge in the therapeutic relationship massively affects the perception of the problem by the client and that when we move your isolated suffering that you don't know if anyone else ever understands, and so far you've never communicated it adequately to anyone else that they could understand, and have probably never communicated communicated it adequately to yourself in order to understand it clearly. What we're able to do is using the idiomatic communication and moving your knowledge to a position of shared knowledge and then into common knowledge, it de-isolates your suffering into a thing that actually everyone can relate to. That in itself depotentiates the vast majority of the problem. Now, from that position, we can then introduce some changes that are quite dramatic. Um, it's, it's fairly fast work and it's highly generative. So it generates new behavior. Mm. Um, and often those new behaviors are generated at an unconscious level. So you, you find yourself doing things differently, but don't really know why. Mm. it's it's quite complicated to try and explain it in a nutshell but essentially yeah it's metaphors isn't it we we work with metaphors but <laughs> the problem with that is the moment i tell people i do metaphor work they go yeah i i i did that i've done nlp i know about metaphors okay there's no relationship between what you've learned in isomorphic therapeutic metaphors say david gordon's work from the nlp world or oh yeah it's the same as clean language isn't it yeah you've just ripped off clean language which i get a lot people say that to me a lot they go, okay, have you trained in clean language? No. Have you ever looked at any of my work in metaphors? No. And yet you know enough that they're the same. Hmm. Okay, um, we've got some work to do. And that's, that's, so one of the difficulties, the moment I say metaphor, people go into immediately their experience of metaphor and assume that's what I'm doing. 100%, never had anyone come on any of the events and say, yeah, this is, this is stuff I already know. It's never happened. Everyone tells me this is completely new material to them because it is. Hmm. So I'm quite, I'm very pleased with it, and I say it's, it's developing more and more um, as time goes on, as I learn more myself. Hmm.
0: So um, what what drives you as an individual? Because I mean, you've effectively created two—I don't want to call them therapeutic models, but conceptual models that have got application that, that certainly have therapeutic applications, or or. Um, or or applications for change, like what, like what, uh, you know? I don't. It's, it's just cheesy to say what gets you up in the morning, but like what drives you to continue to 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 create? Like this is quite a bloody big body yeah. of work. It's, it's is, really easy. It's not easy. Do you think? That, uh, it, for
1: me, the motivation, the, what the motivation is, is really easy. In that, it, most of this is the solution to my own torment. Right. Mm-hmm. See so okay. what? Motive, how many people? How many people? As I mean, you, you, you referenced it before. How many people go on training events, go on personal development courses, because actually they have issues, they're messed up, and they need help in sorting themselves out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's, not, there's, there's nothing wrong with that as a motivation. Well, that was my motivation. You mm-hmm. see, I had in in my early 20s with all the problems that I had, I had shopped around I, medication. Okay, that was actually, the, of all the things I did, that was the most helpful. Um, I, I shopped around various hypotherapists. I, had, I didn't know some of them were NLPers, which is why, because the anxiety issues I had, I constantly I recognized people kept saying to me, Did you know that anxiety is just excitement by a different name? And like when I heard that for the fourth and fifth time, it's like, Are These people know what they're doing. Um, and I, I shopped around and everywhere I went, I was failing to find anyone that I thought had enough brain cells to be able to offer anything of substance. Um, and it was a very frustrating time for me. Now, I was studying Bateson, I was studying, I'd long, at this point, long since studied R.D. Lang. And I was still looking at these areas. Then I got involved in hypnotherapy. I learned hypnotherapy. From there, I got involved in NLP and that kind of stuff. But they were limited in terms of the benefit I was able to achieve. And I I really questioned the level of benefit that a lot of the people from the scene that I was meeting were deriving to, because most of them seemed to be using ego to cover up the problems they had. There there seemed to be a masking over of issues rather than a changing and transformation of self. And so as as the years have gone on and I recognized I still had issues, I needed to find ways to deal with those. And so my motivation has largely been to sort myself out that's that's the reality of it. Um, whether I've achieved that or not. Um, I think I've reached a point where I've been quite happy with myself now for a number of years, especially since addressing status and shame. And um, that's definitely made the difference. I'm quite I'm quite pleased um, with me um, as work in progress, but others may disagree, of course, they may because everyone has different perceptions on things.
0: So if you've reached, uh, you know, you've reached, uh... Austin Nirvana, like, yeah. how are you going to be? Yeah, how are you going to be uh, motivated henceforth? Then?
1: Well, my next my next thing is to keep growing the hair, get along a longer beard and become a prophet. Um, because yeah. I, I've seen the latest fashion within the personal development world. Now everyone's a guru a spirit, they're all spiritual. Now, the spiritual mm. is the new tradition, the new mm. sorry, new fashion. Mm. And very much, um, tarot is becoming a a very popular thing and magic is the big thing Uh, Mm. So they all jump on that bandwagon. Now, Mm. of course, as you know, that's that's my primary background in all of this. Mm. I started out in magic long before therapy. It's Mm. cringeworthy. I imagine it's like Buddhists, real Buddhists looking at mindfulness. Um, where yeah. they've they some aspects of it has been pinched from Buddhism and just cringe mm. um I have the same the same view so yeah so my next my next logical progression now is to become a prophet
2: yeah
0: mm. cool yeah and um yeah I'm sure we've had a discussion on the phone one time where between the two of us, we thought it'd be a good idea to start a cult yeah and uh, I was is. like quite I was quite interested in sort of being like the uh know the tough number two who like keeps them all in line and uh, um but so um gosh oh god i was going to say something it was what's your view on not hypnotherapists and nlps because i think probably by now people have sort of built up a picture of what what do you think about those modalities themselves i mean you said that that you felt that for you that they had a certain amount of uh impact
1: i think that i I think the modalities are well worth studying and Mm. in a lot of contexts in all the cases will be very effective Mm. it just depends on the extent by which they can be applied and the context Mm. and the person to which they're applicable Mm. i don't think even the creators themselves would pretend for one second these are the only things to learn i I mean certainly in the experiences i've had around bandler i don't know grinder I've, i've met i've met him i've never been any in any training environment with him Bandler is, is absolutely vociferous in this is not the only thing you need to come and study. You need to go and study everything and learn a lot more stuff. He's been absolutely vociferous on that. Yeah. So I don't think there's any pretense in terms mm-hmm. of this is the grand unified theory.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I do think the idiot factor who then jump on these things as their own personal favorite solutions to the whole world's mm-hmm. problems, mm-hmm. they then go and espouse it to be more than it actually is. Mm-hmm. So the models themselves are absolutely, I think, and amazing. The, the the stuff that Bounder and Grind developed, I think, was so groundbreaking. It opened the opened the doors because once people have that little bit of knowledge, they go, "Oh, whoa, that can be applied to that," and now I see all those things differently too. And some of the innovators that spilled out of the early days of NLP have come up with some astonishing stuff. We look at, like, mm-hmm. say, the developments of Connie Ray Andreas mm-hmm. with her, her most recent thing, the wholeness work oh, and core same. transformation. Absolutely remarkable bodies of work. And, there's, and she's not alone. There's other innovators that mm-hmm. too. DILT's, um, have has done stuff, interesting stuff. They're also worth learning. It's the scope of application that's the issue and Mm. the the problem of therapists and coaches over generalizing their successes. So because say, the fast phobia cure works on phobias, and it's dramatic, you have a person who's got a complete screaming phobia one minute, Mm. 15 minutes later, there's the tarantula sitting on their hand, and they're all curious about it. Mm. That's really visceral, very, very obvious change to people. And then they go, well, I work with depression. Yeah, I just do the double dissociation on depression. Mm, yeah, and I think I can't even process what you have just said there because that makes yeah. no cognitive sense to me whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and so people start to use these phrases, these labels and terminologies of, of proper processes and technique mm. against something else. They, they, they're, they're referring to something else they've done as though it's this thing, and then the whole waters get muddied. And I, I know there are plenty of practitioners out there who've gone on to become master practitioners and gone on to be trainers, who have never trained in the thing that they think they're teaching. Because yeah. you can go to a, some shoddy school of NLP and learn what they think of as NLP. Yes, we we in our NLP course we study metaphor and archetypes and hero's journey. Well, that's not fucking NLP. What are you doing? But now they've got their certificate, and they think they've learned NLP, and they've learned something of. There's nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. They then go on, and 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 then certify. And the next thing you know, what they what's passing is this is nothing to do with it. There's mm-hmm. so much of that that goes on. It's mm-hmm. awful. Uh, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. No. All these quality control companies that set up they're all protecting the standards you notice they're protecting the standards whether the anlp the atnlp the bbnlp the bnlp the ABNLP. there's thousands and thousands of them. there's more cropping up every month all protecting the field they're clearly not doing a very good job That's all i can say
0: mm-hmm. so um so I want, I want to in a second uh talk to you a little bit about magic um but first while it's in my head because you know I've got the Dory, uh, Dory kind of like six second brain thing going on. I just want to ask you about something that you've always been. And I think yeah, we sort of touched on elements around that, but your ability to kind of, um, I suppose, hold your ground and be in very socially un- cringeworthy, uncomfortable situations um, and and be steadfast. And so if I was going to give an example, so, you know, uh, the viewers and listeners can can get their head around. So there's this thing where that you, that you teach in when you teach IMT and it's people are going, oh, you know, well, you're teaching IMT and, you know, you're, you're waggling your fingers and you're asking a set of questions and you're you know, looking at patterns of chronicity. And then, of course, naturally, and naturally a kind of phenomenon when people are learning are go well, what if that happens? And you've already, you've already Create, set your stall out at the beginning of the training by saying, I do not answer what if questions, and you do this whole set piece this skit around the fact that you don't answer what if questions in spite of that people because they're you know there to try and learn and stuff like that, and they've forgotten that instruction or that or that that element of information, and then they're asking well what if what if this happens and then I've seen you know oh, God, you know we used to sort of do, you know I used to host you and stuff. And uh, and then you'll just hold the space and, you know, maintain eye contact and not kind of like, you know, puff up or anything. uh, But you'll just quite matter of factly say, I don't answer what if questions and kind of stand there and and I can still see stand there, you know, maybe, you know, twiddling a pen or just quite, quite relaxed. And then the person is like, hang on, you're not you're not you're not meeting the social dance. I've asked you a question. I paid in a couple of hundred quid, a few hundred pounds, whatever, to to, to to be taught, and it has to be taught my way. And and you're not answering that. And then and then they'll amplify that. And but you're not responding to that amplification. And and I've been there and I've been thinking, you know, like, oh fuck. Oh. Just, oh, play you, Andy! Just this once, answer him. Answer yeah. the what-if question, please. You know, and I felt really uncomfortable. The tension like, gets
1: very strong hideous. in that room. Yeah. yeah.
0: How the hell do you do that? How did you learn to do that? How can right. we learn to do that? There's
1: two. There's two elements to this. So once I once I understood this whole notion, this whole thing, um, without now teaching the audience here what all the what that's all about with the what-if questions. But essentially, what I'm doing is I'm creating that's- a certain situation that I'm setting up ahead of time. in order to engineer a particular experience for everyone in the room that then becomes a reference point for me later on now in order to arrive at that i had to get i had to sit down and work it out how how can i without anyone knowing set that up
2: Mm.
1: and i was aware I, i got it i was aware of how i could do it in the varying possible ways But then I was assisting on the NLP, one of the NLP trainings with Bandler and John Laval. And I saw John Laval do something. Um, The first time it got my attention because I thought I never saw the setup. I never ever saw the setup for that. Um, And I thought maybe there wasn't a setup. It's just what the nature of things that are emerging. But John's clever guy. Got to be a setup. And then on a subsequent training where I'm assisting, I see him do the same thing again. And I saw the setup. I saw the setup coming, And I thought, okay, that's beautiful. And so now I had, it wasn't the structure of the setup that I was using was the same. It was the delivery of it via how I am being. Because in the early days that I was doing that, I felt the tension too. I used to think... (laughs) oh, this is so uncomfortable. And I'm, yeah. I'm masking it the best I can to, to look like, not, and then when I, when I saw John doing the thing he did, which is not the same, it's a completely different thing, mm. but I saw the beautiful delivery of it. I thought, okay, I need to be like that in the mm. setup and the delivery. So it really helped having, I first of all had the structure and then I found the, the form or the content by which to deliver that structure. And I mm-hmm. found that by copying somebody else. Mm. So that was it but also the other one is repeated practice makes it easier they say it's like murder yeah. after a while it gets a lot easier
0: yeah yeah, mm. yeah. well i can only go, i go have after have to take your word for that but yeah so i mean that was I, I i remember um in a previous employee obviously going back maybe about 12 13 years ago and there was an hr um woman and she was she was the head of hr and she was also a director of the company so you know talk about conflict of interest there and she had this wonderful technique where you'd go in and you'd say okay right talk to me about your problem and you'd you'd speak about your problem and then you'd speak and you'd come to the end of your communication where it would come to like a natural kind of closing because uh, you've said your piece and then you're going to wait for her to for her response but what she did she did this thing where she'd go she wouldn't say anything she would sort of go. She raise her eyes, and I was like, "And I knew I was being manipulated." And I just started to look at NLP, and I was just like, "Now I'm babbling, and I'm saying things that I don't even want to tell her that, I, yeah. to that I'm that, that is, it's not strategically good for me to tell her and stuff." Like that. And I thought that was absolutely sort of communication, mar- I mean, it's genius. But it was that ability to just like hold the space, and it is—it's it, a real it's a real um, skill that is absolutely worth learning, you know, uh, and I think, you know, that phys- physically in jiu-jitsu that, that we talk about, you know, being uh, having being comfortable in uncomfortable situations, the first time you in jiu-jitsu where you have got somebody who is, and this is something that I employ, you know, in the game that I play, uh, you know, when, when I'm doing jiu-jitsu is like, I will be have my arm wrapped around the back of round your back, and I will be pushing my shoulder into your head and into your neck, and, and smothering you putting I know how to direct all of my weight to crush you. Um, I'm literally on my tiptoes. So all of that, and it's the very uncomfortable thing. Now, once you've been doing that for a few years, or even a few a few concentrated months, you learn how to relax into that pressure and, and breathe through it and know that um, that's just one of the variables and that you it, you won't die from it and stuff like that it, it might be painful actually um but initially there's that you it freaks you out and it spasms you and you you end up you know physically blurting stuff out and giving people an arm which is like the whole point in jujitsu. And, and i think that, that that skill that 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 of that holding your holding your stru- state for want of a better phrase and just standing your ground and and being able to, it's like swim in the sea of discomfort, which obviously I, you know you've demonstrated many times to me, and I think that's such a, an, a such a game changing skill to learn, um in life, you know.
1: Yeah, allowing yourself to see one of the things when people have this awkward silence, people feel the need to break the silence, um, and the ability to not feel that need. Yeah. and allow the, the, the words the person has just spoken, allow them just to hang in the air um, and echo around forevermore is a very powerful thing to do. I learned this with dog training too. So we've got, a, we've got two dogs. I've, I grew up with dogs. So I'm familiar with dogs. And we've got a Alsatian who's so a Malinois. So he's a very, um, very intelligent animal. Here's what I know. If you tell the dog off because he's done something wrong again, And then they do the guilt, don't they? They do all the guilty thing and they're just all, oh,
2: I'm so sorry.
1: Never do it again. They will. When you go and let them know it's okay now, because they leave them in shame for five minutes, they go and tell them it's okay. Um, The dog will repeat the behavior. But of course, if you tell them off, they do the shame thing, and then you get on with your life and never bring a closure to that. They'll never do it again. And I learned that with rats as well, because I had rats for years and training a rat. They're so intelligent. They're amazing. And never give the apology after you tell them off, because basically you've just undone the the work you've just done. So when it's left open, and and this is an effect I'm using, because with a a lot of therapy stuff it's not just, and in the training room as well, it's not just about teaching people about stuff. Sometimes you actually have to put a change in there. And everyone seems to think, I say like massive generalization, but therapists seem to think change only comes by doing a procedural technique.
2: Mm.
1: And sometimes you just need to hold a mirror up to a certain behavior and allow the person to have that and now they can't get closure on it. Mm. That's quite a powerful in itself is quite a powerful thing. And it works extremely well in animal training. And there's no reason why it shouldn't work any Mm. less effectively. Um, or, you know, the reason why it should work less effectively in people. And so these are some of the principles that I employ. The challenge I have as a trainer of people who do this is getting people to actually start to adopt some of these practices themselves because it steps out of the normal paradigm by which people behave. And most people end up entirely being meta and talking to people about stuff and then taking them through technique and process in order to try and get the change work. And they never actually doing the change work from within those. So for me, um, a technique and process is the excuse to do the change. It isn't the change itself. So if I take you through a six-step reframe, okay, I know the six-step reframe is a fantastically structured intervention for people. It's really it's one of the genius things I've I've ever seen. But that's not the technique I'm doing. That's not where I'm levering the change. The change is happening. That's just the excuse for the interaction I'm about to have with you. And within that interaction, that's where I'm doing the change work process. Mm. But this is quite sophisticated, quite complicated. And how do you even begin to teach that? Or how do I even begin to teach that to another person to do? Mm. Um, there's not many people out there who are actually doing that. There's a few, but there's not many.
0: Mm. No, cool. So um, tell us about magic and and if you can speak on, you know, for a lot of people, they will think uh that, that aren't maybe involved in some of the you know, spiritual practices or personal development or stuff like that they'll just think you mean that you know uh, i've got a magic one they'll nice. think that you mean that kind of magic yeah um uh can you just explain in really simple terms like in, what what the hell is magic is it is it devil
1: like is it you know yeah, what see, is it Yeah, magic's not any one particular thing. It's a whole collection. It's an umbrella term for a whole collection of stuff. Now, magic suffers a particular image problem as well. The same thing that happened with NLP where people learn what they think is NLP it's something completely different. And then over time, it becomes something else and everyone's calling it that. The same thing happened within the magic stuff. And so now you get the, the Instagram generations of people who are witches. I'm an Instagram witch. I, I believe in Wicca. I'm very pagan. And it's not, they, they're not, they're not. They, they don't understand. The same thing happened with all the, all the different magical disciplines. Magic is largely a collection of different philosophies. In the Western tradition, it's built around what's known as the hermetic principle, um, which is the as above, so below. There's the the duality and opposites, holding everything in balance. And that man is a microcosm of the universe, which is the macrocosm. And everything that is without is reflected within, and everything that's within is reflected without. So by making changes on the microcosm, you create a corresponding change in the macrocosm. So literally the world is the, we see the world as we are. That's a classic hermetic thing that you'll see in, in personal development. Mm. Now, where that then starts to get crazy is when people go, well, I can hex somebody. I can, I can cause damage to another being by making a corresponding change in myself. It corresponds something on the outside. And so now you get a whole school of thought that goes down that line. You get other people, which is, well, I use magic for a spiritual practice. I'm very spiritual because I like dolphins. And then you get a whole genre of people that go down that line. Oh, yes, because it's crystals, they're very magical. I like crystals. That's why I always wear my birthstone. And they have no idea that birthstone was just an innovation by a crystal company to sell more stones. They don't know those things. So... Within the field, the vast majority of literature, websites, publications, audio programs and podcasts are from people who are like that. Now, deep within there, you're going to find some of the original and authentic philosophical currents that everyone is so keen to jump on, but they don't really understand. And that's where you have the secret societies form. Um, And the reason the secret societies form is very, very simple is to keep the the true knowledge and that kind of stuff out of the hands of people like the NLP practitioners. <laughs> It's to keep it out of the hands of the Instagram wicker generation of, of, of young witches who are, you know, all sparkly and, and fairy like that is, and it's to keep it out of the hands of the Goths who are doing the, you know, oh man, I, 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 I cause I, I invoke Crohn's on man. Cause I like black Sabbath and I wear a faded black t-shirt. It's to keep it out. of the ha- So unfortunately what most people think of as magic, they're not anywhere close to what it really is, but ultimately it's a philosophy. Mm -hmm. And it's philosophical principles based around mathematics, um, based around a whole bunch of metaphors of the operating science of the Middle Ages and beyond, Mm -hmm. uh, using a lot of archetypal metaphor and everything else. Mm -hmm. So that's essentially what's going on, but it's it's never anything that people think it is. Mm -hmm. And most people that would join one of these lodges or organizations will be sorely disappointed by what they find when they get there. Because actually, it's a lot of work, an insane Mm -hmm. amount of work. And I think it's why my general knowledge base in terms of what I do as a therapist is so well informed because of the years I spent in various organizations studying magic and, and practicing it through the embodiment of some of the philosophies, which is what the rituals are. They're an embodiment of it. So you have a, a much more practical understanding of what it is you're talking about. That There's a lot of work involved. And of course, no, people don't want that. They want the likes on their Instagram account. Mm-hmm
0: and so um are you saying that there aren 't swords
1: one of the one of the early lodges I joined you get some some quite comical um, things so here's one of the one of the key things about the whole magic stuff is if you 're involved in any magical group and there 's not a great sense of fun and sense of humor you 're in the wrong group and they may have got a few things wrong and so there 's a very high level of comedy can, can go on so one of the lodges I used to meet in it was in somebody's living room because you know we haven't got any money and uh, haven't got anywhere we can hire out as a venue and all the rest of it. And uh, so there's the, the, a lot of the rituals and the ceremonials are embodiments of principles because mm-hmm. it's the only way you can actually break it down into a, a tangible way of understanding it. Mm. And quite often a ritual or ceremony is performed, and then the teachings take place because you now have a reference point of what's being discussed and sometimes Mm -hmm. it's the other way around that's quite common thing it's not the only form of of ceremonial that's used but it's it's one of the key forms there was a regular an opening ritual the the lodge meeting would take place and then there's a closing ritual and this particular lodge utilized swords which everyone would have and it involves Mm -hmm. a large degree of waving them around now in a confined space of somebody's (laughs) living room where there's about 10 of you all waving these swords around, it gets quite dangerous. So we didn't use swords. We used to pretend we had swords. Wow. And so everything else, everything else was kept constant except the actual physical presence of a sword which nobody actually had but we'd all be waving the thing around as though we had one it was absolutely hysterical which of course is not really the ethos we were supposed to have at that point of the ceremonial Mm. um but so you get those kind of practical considerations so yeah there are swords where you've got enough space um i've been in one one lodge where i wanted the guy to stick a lump of rubber on the end of his sword because he was there's only one guy wielding the sword so stick a rubber on it it?" because seriously you're gonna have someone's eye out if you don't um so sometimes you get these kind of things
0: so so putting aside uh you know the way uh popular culture and it certainly and i'm talking about sort of the pop popular popular subculture within personal development that has taken uh what i'm about to say what what's your true experience knowledge feeling view on energy and energy work what do you think do you think it's all
1: most of these people are completely deluded
0: sure sure yeah
1: they're superficial intellectually weak um indulging their own narcissistic empathic value um Mm. thinking that they can control the world um heal the sick and the energy of the divine flows through them because they are the primary channel for it these Mm. people are totally deluded Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, is that, is but, 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 right.
0: yeah. <laughs> no, well, well, not well, not really, because that's you, that you're talking about the people who do, I'm talking about. Do you, do you believe in the idea of being able to sort of transmute energy and use energy? Because there's so I mean, there's so much kind of like more of the spiritual, the spiritual sort of like sub sector of personal development is is you know is about this manifesting and channeling this energy like what's your view do you think it's real yeah, it's happening or... all the
1: time I mean the the it was it it was Arthur C. Clarke said any sufficiently advanced technology would look like magic magic um, yeah the, the light the lights in this this attic here are transmuting energy they're converting yeah. uh the movement of electrons um, through mm. a cable into heat mm. and light in order mm. then that I can then receive mm. that heat and light and mm. utilize it. Mm. The, the very medium we're talking through is transmuting energy mm. into different forms mm. the whole time. Mm. So it does happen. Do any of these fools who are waving their hand around doing Reiki <laughs> healings or tapping on energy points because they're, they're a tapper, are any of those people doing anything? No, they're just deluding themselves. Mm. And mm. They, they are using shared fantasy to convince other people to play a part in that fantasy, who then, because they now have bought into it, will now start to have all sorts of other responses, placebo responses being just one of them, there's many others, and may well report, oh, I can feel it too. Oh, yeah. Mm. So I think think I'd love to see evidence of any of this stuff.
0: Well, you know, and 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 I've watched one of your recent videos, which you kind of discussed this, and for, you know, and I, um, obviously that that'd be a good video for for other people to go and watch on your on your YouTube channel. But um, specifically, uh, energy being propagated as, as a as a as a way to inoculate yourself against COVID. Now, if you could just talk, because I know that you had COVID and you've made yeah, me I'd you talk like a to infect every that.
1: single one of those people, um, and let's see how well they do. Yeah. Uh, let's give them herpes as well while we're at it.
0: Yeah. So, so what what were your experience? <laughs> what was your experience of, of gosh, I shouldn't laugh when I'm talking about COVID nineteen? But um what was your experience of COVID yourself?
1: horrendous absolutely horrendous um so i I think i got lucky compared to most um my symptoms were were gradual as opposed to acute onset and sudden unwellness and it didn't really affect me in the respiratory system it affects Mm -hmm. me now in the respiratory system so i'm short of breath coming up the stairs everything Mm -hmm. i do i'm short of breath i'm permanently short of breath right um so that's a that's an issue and at some point Mm -hmm. when it's possible to see a doctor again because you're not allowed to see a doctor unless you've got active mm. covid you can't get an appointment for anything else i need to go and get my heart checked because i'm not convinced it's my lungs i think mm. it may well be a heart a cardiac. so but the effects that i had were predominantly neurological mm. Mm. Um, with extreme i mean mind-blowing fatigue i mean i've never experienced anything like that in my life mm. um, and then at some point i had a stroke of some description um, where i became wow. profoundly dyslexic and um what's the word aphasic um for a period well, so what of about does that 40... mean i c- i couldn't read i could not i would oh. look i would look at text and i couldn't i couldn't tell you what it was i could talk normally um my memory was bad and i lost nouns so i wasn't able to give anyone's name it's known as a nomic aphasia um, and that lasted about 48 hours and i couldn't type for about a week i would type away quite merrily um, re- I could read. I, I got my reading comprehension back, but my output text. I would then check my email. It's like nothing there makes any sense whatsoever, or it's word salad. It's complete gibberish. The whole thing. Mm. It wasn't what I thought I was saying, and then that 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 lasted a few days, and um, mm. then came back whenever I was really really tired. And then I mm. even now, when I'm tired, I can't read. That's really noticeable to me. I can't make sense of a sentence
0: amazing. And, and so, so yeah, so how,
1: but I'm now getting better, but this is from last April um of last year. Yeah. So
0: yeah. yeah, so nearly a year. Time. What I mean, you know, everyone's got their own view. Like how do you think the whole thing started? Do you think it was bioengineering or you, I
2: mean, it's
1: because, speculation, isn't it? Speculation. Yeah. Who, yeah. who knows? Would we ever know the truth anyway? Um, because yeah. everyone who reports on these things has an agenda. And mm. so everyone's for every you see, it's not just the NLPers that are manipulating and controlling image. Mm. In every sector, people are doing this. And so yeah. the reporting of all news, reporting of all data, everything the politicians do, even what mm. the clinicians are doing, is all subject to enormous elements of bias yeah and so what we end up hearing what we then remember hearing what we interpret and what we understand and then what we output as a result of that also subjected mm. to bias mm. so it's all just going to be speculation forevermore. um mm. whether it does us any good i don't know the conspiracy nuts i've got multiple multiple theories on this i was subjected to some of it when people were contacting me via facebook back because i had facebook back then to tell me that it was either flu vaccine or it's actually a stress response. Um, I mean, I had one particular individual who was regaling me with, oh, don't be so silly, COVID's been around for years, it's just a cold. It's just that they've given a name to it now. Well, she's changed her tune since she's gone down with COVID. Oh, wow. It's funny that. It is funny. Yeah. I, I heard it all from her and now I'm having to hear the other side of it because no one's suffered as much as she, she has. Mm-hmm. And uh, There's know- going to be a lot more goes on to the people who were the initial experts on the conspiracy on what it really was, when they Mm -hmm. start to get it, they will they'll put the same deluded energy into their reporting Mm -hmm. of their their suffering that they put into the reporting and judgment of everyone else's suffering. And they make themselves the center of attention. Again,
0: it it, it did seem, you know, and again, it could be could be just my perception, but things the government did seem to take things a bit more seriously when Boris was was afflicted. then it, all of a sudden, like, actually, maybe it became a little bit more real to him. But uh, yeah, and thereby, oh, okay, right, you know, I'm going to make whatever changes I'm going to make. But um, I know that the I remember hearing the scientific community have said, this is actually just a warm up. You know, this is, this can get,
2: a, you know, this well, we is haven't COVID-19.
1: even hit 5% of the population infected. Yeah. You see, back yeah. when I was infected in April, it was 0.4% no. of the population had been infected at that point.
2: So what well, is that in numbers? Well, less thing? than 1%.
1: Right. Now yeah. we're up to about 4% to 5% infection rate. I actually haven't mm. looked in the last few weeks. I don't, I don't actually know. Yeah. I will be way off on that one. So mm. we still haven't hit the majority of the population being infected. Mm. Mm -hmm. Obviously, now the vaccine is out, people are hoping it doesn't hit the majority. But now Mm -hmm. if look at the chaos that was caused on the health services and everywhere else when it was 0.4 percent, it was astonishing. Mm -hmm. Now imagine it's 20 percent of the population inflicted. Suddenly, you see, what happens is people can be all these deniers because they don't know anyone personally who's been affected and -hmm. they've not been affected. So it's easy to go. Well, this isn't happening yeah in your reality to your immediate vicinity it's not happening but it's happening Mm -hmm. elsewhere but the narcissistic value says my experience is the totality of the universe yeah now when they get infected it's they're the only one it's happening to and they're the Mm -hmm. most important of it because their experience is the whole universe Mm -hmm. and so unfortunately we're going to start to see those same assholes who are now on the other end of it and they will make the same amount of noise and meanwhile everyone else who suffered through it doesn't ever you know what I mean they won't go oh, I'm really sorry everyone that I I said those things and wrote those things and posted those things on facebook and I posted all that misleading stuff I was wrong no they won't no they won't they will i still... think they
0: call that a, they call that a pivot don't they when they're yeah. just basically uh managing to leverage what they're saying into their modified new agenda
1: yeah um yeah I can't uh, wait to the new code trainers get it. Yeah, because well, what I was subjected to by those assholes, um, right? The, by by me calling them out on their bullshit, um, right. and then being accused of a whole bunch of stuff. If anyone wants to know on that, just look at my website. They will, yeah. they'll find it. And I, I, I can't wait to see how much their new code techniques that was going to protect everyone from COVID come on my course. Sign up now. discount mm-hmm. Early booking. Mm-hmm. You know. How much their their preferred technique will save them from the ravages of COVID?
0: Well, it's like it, no. <laughs> no, no. Well, it's like uh, people generally don't deal with rejection and failure very well, do they? And uh, it's like, like we said, you know, that's you know, we'll do almost anything to avoid having to look at our own like mess you know and and own up to that and own it but um because it's i think it's an ugly thing to do and it's a very difficult thing to do but i think the other side of that if you can go through that obviously there's you're going to be in dealing with reality in a, in a with a greater grasp and, and a great degree of functionality what what do you make of like um you know polarity responders and like and i guess stubbornness and and stuff like that because i sort of see it as to some extent as a strength but if it's used too much then you know it's
1: it's a it's a problem with the whole notion of labeling someone as a polarity responder because ultimately if i say you are a polarity responder Hmm. i haven't got you to agree with what i want you to agree with and you've taken an opposite Hmm. position. Mm -hmm. And I'm not willing to allow that the possibility that you're right. Right. And so I'm going to dismiss any notion of you being right by just basically reframing everything about you as, oh, you're just a polarity responder. Mm -hmm. So Mm therein lies the difficulty is that this is a notion by which we can dismiss the credibility of another person's point of view Mm -hmm. by dismissing Mm -hmm. the person with with a diagnostic label. Mm-hmm. And so the, therein lies the issue for me, is that actually it's possible that multiple realities exist and two people with opposing versions of reality are both correct. Mm-hmm. We only have to look at, say, a progressive liberal politics and conservative politics. Mm-hmm. Both are correct. Mm-hmm. Both are being done for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And both are absolutely right. But they're not necessarily very compatible with each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But it's necessary when we have, say, a conservative ruling class. To mm-hmm. offer progressive values in order to balance it out. If we mm-hmm. have a progressive ruling class, it's very important to offer conservative values to balance that out. Mm-hmm. But to, to deride, when they start deriding each other as being the polar opposite, therefore wrong, mm-hmm. it dismisses the possibility that actually they have merit. Yeah. So this, this is one of the difficulties when we start to look at op- opposing points of view. Mm-hmm. And then where do we draw the line? Because reality itself is, is pretty crazy. And because it's crazy, then we can start to take the craziness aspects of that, go to the fringes of absurdity of people's imaginations where they start believing in alien abductions and all all the flat earth and all that kind of nonsense. Chemtrails, Bill Gates, you know, immunization program of of microchips in the vaccines. They believe in nanotechnology. Those things, of course, all have elements of possibility to them because of the craziness of reality. Yeah. so at what point has someone got an opposing point of view and what point is somebody utterly deluded
0: it's it's quite seductive because what i'd notice is they they do a lot of the conspiracy theorists latest uh sort of slew of like ideas is maybe this is an old thing where they they do the the appeal to authority. so they'll go this is rita jones and she is a doctor, and she tra- trained at Stanford, and she's got this, all these credentials. And then you, so you go, oh shit, she must know what she's talking about. Yeah, yeah. And then within five minutes, she's going, within them there is the code six six six, which is in a microchip, which they are actually in. And you're just like, yeah. But it's quite, you know, it's it takes a level of kind of like a, almost like a, a awareness or some sort of shield to to go. Oh well, she's 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 she has all these credentials. She must know what she's talking about. She must be telling the truth, and that there can't possibly be this artefact of bare madness within her that is that is causing her to say this stuff. But it's 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 worrying, isn't it? Because like, it's it's very easy to to sort of to fall to that um you know that thought. Oh well, she, she is a doctor, so she must know and. Well, she's a professor. I think
1: one of a common problem, um, especially with the conspiracy nutters and and people of that ilk, the, and and the political extremists too. There's a lot of um, a lot of anger and hate um, that, that drives people. So people are looking for theories that confirm their pre-existing biases.
2: Mm.
1: Now, not all anger and hate feels bad. A lot no. of hate and anger is really pleasurable. Yeah, absolutely. It's enjoyable. And it's also a point of rapport between people
2: Mm.
1: where people enjoy hating on a particular, say, ethnic group or racial group or Mm. other, in my case, you know, that kind of stuff. There's an enjoyment element that gets attached to that that activity. Mm. And so from there, we can start to construct a story and it feels so good. And the story Mm. also serves to justify our existing biases. Um, and that's a, a very human, very human trait.
0: It's that whole, um, uh, to use that word, I just said, it's pivoting off the whole righteous anger. Like you've got, you yeah. know, think of the children. You know, you've got every right to be angry and like grab the pitchforks, get the torches. And...
1: But I think, think for me, the one thing the 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 epidemic revealed, actually several things it revealed. The first one was how unbelievably weak people are. Mm. I mean, it was a few weeks or a few days into lockdown and the panic buying of toilet paper and the madness that erupted from there. People getting abusive and angry to shop workers and all that kind of stuff was just extraordinary. The chaos that emerged from that was absolutely mind blowing and people spitting at each other and stuff like that. So the weakness, but also people's complete lack of preparedness um, people don't prepare yeah. people live in this safe bubble that nothing's ever going to go wrong and they have nothing invested in themselves their mm. own inner strengths, their own physical strengths their own resources people mm. don't put any investment in what will i do what will i be how will i be when something goes wrong in my life and it will We're all going to have relatives die. We're all going to face our own mortality. We're all going to lose things. We may face things like unemployment, economic changes we can't control. And no one seems to have any preparedness for that. And that that amazes me um, because I I tend to invest. See, when the good times are good, people just indulge themselves. How about when the good times are good, you start investing in yourself for when they're not so good? It makes sense to me, but people don't think like this. And I don't I don't understand that. That that is actually outside of my comprehension that people can be that blind and that weak. But the other one that I think took me by surprise was how quickly people become stupid. The conspiracy, some of the conspiracy nutters on my Facebook pages was were some of the people I would least expect to go down that route of being a conspiracy nut job and a complete denier people who are up until that moment i had always thought of sensible rounded people i respected and then they start posting these extreme things um and i was like wow wow how how little it actually takes! this is just a horrible disease that is killing and disabling Mm. an unbelievable number of people we're not having to live in a war zone with that same amount of death and pestilence happening
2: yeah. Because
1: in, in times of war, not only do you have very high death rates, but also you have economic collapse, you might end up homeless, you might have people dying yeah. around you. You yeah. might now be somebody who's a refugee, but mm-hmm. we don't want them here. They should go somewhere else. They're just migrants. <laughs> you, know, you now be- could become one of those people in the caravan of refugees being hated on by everybody in the world's media. Yeah. All we've got is basically a pandemic without all those additional things happening to people and look at how so many, po- so many people within the population have responded. It is mm. astonishing to me. Um, mm. And that has been very disappointing. I've got to say, I say some of the people who I respected, I, I've lost all faith in them mm. because of the, the the stuff they would write
2: mm.
1: and claim. Mm. And then the hating they would then put on anyone who dared wear a mask or dared, yeah. you know, say that they actually had this mythical disease that apparently doesn't exist.
0: Yeah, well, you, you, they're, they're then the people who are pointing the finger saying, oh, you're weak because you're taking, because you're believing, you know, you're believing the the, the narrative of the media and big pharma, you know, that to control you by putting yeah. on a mask and stuff. So um, like, just, just in closing, Andy, and I know you're going to hate this and you'll probably just tell me to piss off. But but what advice would you give to
1: people? Oh, God, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. OK, delete your social media,
0: because what you said about the preparedness, actually, that's mm. that's really good, I think. I think, you know, I think, you know, within within uh physical training and stuff, there's this thing called GPP, which is general uh preparedness practice or something like I think it's GP or something like that. So it's like, you know, trying to create yourself as like this all-round prepared individual, mm. you know, with a bit of cardio, a bit of strength and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean like, I I think that's really it. So so you're saying delete social media.
1: Delete social media, I mean that's I think that's very important. Get your life back. Get your mind back. Get your stop the brain rot before it's too late. Delete mm. social media and subscribe to me on on YouTube. Yeah. um that's the only <laughs> only social media presence i now have um i've got a member section where i'm offering a lot of teachings um and stuff and the not the entertaining stuff is the in-depth stuff um mm-hmm. so that's on the subscription uh new content added every week those are probably the two best things people can do
0: yeah 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 and thereby then we're sort of like uh, moving into the the profit territory where uh where you're you're obviously the answer to humanity right
1: yeah i need to write a manifesto um because yeah. every prophet, modern day prophet, before they they form the cult that they all get to then commit suicide in a in a bizarre way um i have to have a manifesto so i'll start working yeah. on that quite soon.
0: yeah andy thank you so much for your time this morning thank it's you. been almost three hours of, of talking and uh you know um it's been really great and i, I really appreciate your time man
1: likewise thank you